Welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Kraus. So there are a few exciting episodes to look forward to in the docket. Um, Amjad Massad of Replit, the sponsor of this podcast. That episode has been recorded for many months now, but it's finally uh, going to be released soon. I also, a couple of months ago, recorded an episode with Jennifer Jacobs, who used to be at the MIT Media Lab, but now is an assistant professor at UCSB. We also have Jonathan Aldrich coming on the podcast. Uh, You may have heard of his name because he is the advisor or the advisor of the advisor of many of my other guests who have already been on the podcast. So it is about time to have his voice represented here as well. So look forward to all those episodes. And you also have some solo podcasts of me talking about my own research to look forward to. I have been very delinquent over the past year about publishing those episodes, but I have plans over the next couple of weeks to release one, um, and then maybe a few months later to release another one. So hopefully that happens, and you can hear more about what I've been up to. Uh, You can always find what I've been up to at futureofcoding.org slash log, Um, but if you prefer to get it in audio form, you'll have to wait a bit. So today's episode is really exciting. It's been planned for a long time, and it's particularly topical right now because they just launched this this past week. Uh, So I'm interviewing... Paul Bigger and Ellen Chiza of Dark today. Um, so beyond their launch, which you probably saw because it was at the top of Hacker News and all over Twitter, um, you may have heard of them because I've been working with them over the past two years on a really long and exciting research project doing a survey of the space of future of coding tools, languages, and interfaces. And we, uh, in the past couple of months, published, uh, packaged up that research to be published um, and we launched that two weeks ago as the whole code catalog, which you also may have seen on Hacker News and Twitter. So I was really excited to get that out the door because that took uh, a lot more time than you would have expected to put together all of those videos and reviews of these tools. I had to actually figure out how to get them to run and then spend time building things in them so I could report back on how they felt and what it was like to use them. So um, I encourage you to check out this whole code catalog which um, I talk a bit about with Ellen in this episode. So a bit about how this episode is structured. It's a bit um, different, I guess maybe a little awkward um, than the way episodes are normally structured. We were thinking about publishing this episode in a different way, but but the way that we uh, decided to go forward is uh, there are two, episode, two interviews, one with Ellen and then one with Paul in series, following this. So so this episode is kind of like two interviews smushed together. The one with Ellen is quite a bit shorter than the one with Paul. Um, with Ellen, we talk about the whole code catalog. We talk about her background and how she met Paul originally. And um, also we talk about her experience hiring their first customer at Dark, which is a non-intuitive, but um, a really compelling idea um, when she explains it. And then with Paul, we talk more about the programming languages side of thing, things because he's a compiler expert. He, he studied um, compilers in college. He, he worked on the JavaScript compiler at Mozilla and then started CircleCI and now is doing Dark. So um, just to whet your appetite for the conversation, we talk about um, Dark, which is this tool, this web-based tool for building web HTTP backends. It's known for a functional programming structured editor uh, that features live data that you can play with as you're editing your code. Um, 
So Paul talks a lot about accidental versus essential complexity, and that's something that I've been thinking a lot about in the past couple of months, particularly because essential versus accidental is an Aristotelian idea, and so Paul and I get into that semantic debate a bit. We also get into the debate about what the phrase no code means and if it would apply to something like dark. And then we get into some of the bigger themes with dark, including the fact that it's a holistic editor. They've combined many of the features and many different tools and languages into a single holistic tool that does a lot less than, I guess, all those tools individually, but because it's been combined into a single tool, it doesn't need to do as much. There's a whole lot of affordances that can be taken advantage of by this holistic nature. But of course, there are trade-offs, and so we get into the, the positives and the downsides. And the main downside that, that many people have been pointing out is the fear of lock-in because we've all seen what happens when you move all of your infrastructure onto a startup's uh, platform and then that startup goes away. So it's a scary thing, but they have some plans for how to deal with it. And yeah, we talk, we talk about a whole, a whole bunch of things. This is a, a pretty long podcast. Um, so I won't uh, recap the whole thing here. You'll just have to listen uh, to to get to it. Um, but it's it's a really fun conversation, and it's uh, exciting to get a little bit more perspective about what they're trying to do in addition to all the information they released on Monday about their launch. So now just a quick message from our sponsor. Replit is an online REPL for over 30 languages. It started out as a code playground, but now scales up to a full development environment where you can do everything from deploying web servers to training ML models, all driven by the REPL. They are a small startup in San Francisco, but they reach millions of programmers, students, and teachers. They're looking for hackers interested in the future of coding and making software tools more enjoyable and accessible. Email jobs at repl.it if you're interested in learning more. Okay, um, now I'm going to introduce Ellen, and we will hear from her for about 30 minutes, and then I will introduce Paul, and the rest of the episode will be from him. And without any further ado, Ellen Chisa. Welcome, Ellen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited uh, to have this conversation on the podcast. Yeah, we've been talking for so long about these tools, but it's exciting to do it for the podcast. So um, before we start talking about Dark, I wanted to get a, a bit about your background um, b before Dark and then how you met Paul and got involved in this strange world of improving programming. Yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense. So for undergrad, I went to Franklin W. Olin College of Engineering and the focus Olin had was always on dramatically improving engineering education. And so this was a while back. So at the time, that was things like having project-based education, not necessarily just doing a problem set, and like doing a lot of the things we think of as being like really normal in the workplace. But for education, it was a different approach. And so I spent a bunch of time there and really enjoyed it. But one of the things that frustrated me was that I did find that a lot of the time I spent programming felt not as rewarding as I wished it would either because there'd be some syntax error, two tools wouldn't work nicely together. And that was what led me to go into product management jobs instead of software development jobs was I just felt like I was making better use of my time. And so from there, I did, I did it a bunch at different consumer companies. I worked at Microsoft for a while and then it was a Kickstarter, which I loved because I really like helping other people to make things. I went and did the first half of an MBA at Harvard Business School. And then I was working at a travel <laughs> company. And I realized that every time I pitched the travel company, I kept being like, and then people will travel more. So then they will make more things. And I realized I had to get closer to helping people make things again. Mm. That makes sense. What product did you work on at Microsoft? I worked on Office Mobile. And so I was there in 2010, which was in the era where the world's smartphone market share went from being dominated by Symbian to being completely iPhone and Android. 
that's a really interesting time to be at a big tech company. It was, it was super interesting. And the organization was set up such that we were, we worked a lot between the different groups. So we spent a lot of time with office and with windows phone and with windows live SkyDrive, which I guess is called OneDrive now um, and with SharePoint. So we got to see a lot of the different pieces of Microsoft. So how'd you get connected to Paul? It was funny. So originally Thompson, who started Frame Data, sent me an email and asked if I wanted to be introduced to Paul to work in this space. And it just wasn't a particularly good time for me personally. I really, I liked my travel job aside from continually pitching it as being about helping people make things. And uh, my husband and I just bought a house in Boston and we were, it was right before we got married. And so it didn't seem like the best timing. And then two weeks after that, Paul cold emailed me. I happened to be on a trip to San Francisco anyway, and I agreed to have coffee with him. Wow. That's uh, quite a disruptive uh, change. So is that why your MBA is only partially finished because you left to start Dark? I actually left when we were starting Lola. I'd been in uh, EIR in Blade, which was a consumer tech incubator in Boston at the time, which then became Lola. And I'd originally intended to go back at some point after Lola. And then I met Paul and was like, okay, I would much rather work on solving this problem. This is everything I've cared about solving for a long time. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So it, it sounds like um, when you first met him, the message really resonated based on your experiences programming in college. You, you like definitely saw the problem. Yeah. And not just uh, programming in college, also all of the experiences I'd had in the workspace with like at Microsoft, even just getting the emulator set up for the tooling we were using to build for Symbian was an hour long endeavor. And then inevitably you would have a day's worth of meetings. And then by the time you got back to your desk, something else would be broken and you'd be spending another hour trying to get this emulator to work again. Uh, and then like a Kickstarter, a bunch of the time, at the time I was there, they were using a different payment solution. And it was really hard to test anything with the payments flow in your staging environment. And so every time you deployed something related to that, you were a little bit nervous. Um, and there's this whole thing around, we had like a campfire room. This was before Slack to coordinate when we were going to deploy. There's a bunch of really interesting work going on there, but there were all these things that were accidental complexity about software that were getting in the way and like similar problems at Lola for sure. Hmm. And so, um, I, 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 like right in the front of Dark's website is this claim that you're trying to make programming a hundred times easier, which is a pretty big number. And I'm, I'm curious if in like that first meeting, Paul said like that's what he wanted to do and if you believed him if you, or if, like you took a bunch of convincing to or like immediately you were like yeah yeah it, it feels like this could be made a hundred times easier i was i was pretty much immediately on board and paul and i were actually talking about this last weekend because most people at the time weren't and a lot of the things we've been working on with dark for the last couple of years now seem a little bit more tractable but at the time it seemed it seemed off the wall it didn't seem like something you would be able to do so um before we keep talking around it. I wanted to um, paint a picture of what dark looks like uh, today. So people have this mental, mental picture in their head of, of what it is that we're talking about. And I thought maybe you could, you could take that one, uh, like just describe the editor experience kind of roughly like what it looks like and how yeah, you interact with absolutely. it. So dark, like we've said on our website and other places is a way of trying to remove accidental complexity from software. And so sort of the underlying thing behind that has been with a lot of our developer tooling over time, we've been incrementally making things we've always used better. So editors get a little bit better, CI gets a little bit better, version control gets a little bit better. And while they're getting better, they don't necessarily become easier to use or easier to connect to other parts of the tool chain. And so the original motivation with Dark was how can you pull out all of the things you don't want to be doing to be focusing on your code? And when we started thinking about that, we thought about 
well, we don't necessarily want to think about setting up our infrastructure. Like the, the wow moment is you get something working locally and then you're like, oh wait, now I have to like go get this somewhere else. So like, how can that not be a problem? And then same thing, every time you make a change and then you wait and then you deploy again and then you see and you go in this loop, but it's pretty slow because you're waiting so long for your deployment. How can we make that not a thing? And then similarly, my old problem from when I was an undergrad, you make a syntax error and then four hours later, you find your one syntax error and you're very upset about having wasted four hours. And so when we started looking at how to make those not a thing, what we came to was you could make a holistic solution that had the language, the editor, and the infrastructure together. And by doing that, you would be able to have each of them informing each of the others and do a bunch of work at the boundaries between them that you wouldn't have been able to without integrating them into a holistic platform. But when you think about how Dark actually works, a lot of the pieces, the language itself, for instance, feels a lot like a language. People always think it's going to be way out there, completely different. But programming in Dark, you use a lot of the same things. Like, there's still ints, there's still strings, you're still using list map as a function. Like, a lot of the core concepts for writing code itself feel the same. Our editor is structured. And so the easiest way to kind of think about what it is to have a structured editor is to think about tools like IntelliJ or like what Kite was doing, where you have this much more robust set of autocomplete tools. And so we, we definitely did not invent having autocomplete in an editor. We take a lot of inspiration from other tools that have solved these problems well. But so in Dark, when you're adding something, you don't just have the autocomplete as a suggestion. You actually can't add something that's syntactically invalid. You can't type list ma instead of list map and then get an error for that because as soon as you type list ma your only option is going to be using the list map functionality one other third thing that's interesting about dark which is probably the more different part is that we are really focused on giving people the ability to look at the overall architecture of their code base and i'm sure when you talk to ball he'll get into this more but the idea being that when you start a new job, someone takes you to the whiteboard and draws out how your system works. And they don't just give you a list of files that you're editing, they tell you about how your system is actually operating. And so the way Derek is organized, we're moving towards, yes, you're looking at what looks like code when you're writing an individual function or when you're, when you're writing some logic, but you still wanna be able to see that high level view of how the different things within your code base connect to each other. So how, how does that look yeah. in the editor? How do you connect? Right now, we're only taking yeah. our first steps towards this. So one thing we have, it's actually pretty similar. If you saw the work that GitHub came out recently with references to see how things call each other. But so when you're looking at, say, an API endpoint in Dark, if it's mm -hmm. writing to a database, you'll see what data store it is writing to. If it is emitting to a worker, you'll see what background worker that it's emitting to, and you'll be able to easily get more information about which different pieces of your code base you're connected to when you're editing that specific handler. Uh, and another thing just to add on, I don't know, you may have said this already, but um, an important thing to note about Dark is that it's for creating backend web services. Is that my, or yeah, am I limiting the scope correct. of what Dark is used um, So right now Dark is very focused on building backend web services. We think a lot of the concepts in Dark will apply to other types of programming as well. But when you're already at the point of making an, a programming language and editor and infrastructure, you have to narrow scope somewhere. And so we started with building backend web services. Uh, I may forget a few, but the, the sorts of things you can like create the top level in Dark, whereas you can create a HTTP handler, you can create a, a background job, worker, you can create mm -hmm. a a data like store. A yep. Yeah. You can you can extract yeah, any code store. that you want to reuse into functions that you can rerun. So not like serverless functions, like more classic functions as you would think about them when coding. 
Um, and then there's a couple of other interesting things. You're able to host static assets. So if you have compiled JavaScript that you want to host on the front end, or if you have images you're serving to your end users about how to handle this. So I saw you got a lot of attention last year, I think it was, for hiring your first customer. So um, I'd be curious where you came up with that idea and, and exactly what the deal was for the person who, who got that and, and how it went, what you got out of it. And yeah, if you'd recommend it, that sort of thing. Yeah. So like we were talking about earlier, you're you're making a pretty big bet when you're deciding to build on this new infrastructure that you also have to learn a new language for. And so at the very beginning, we also hadn't built that many things on top of it ourselves. And we knew that it was really painful and that we were going to spend basically all of our time having to support the first person. And so we were thinking about how can we incentivize someone to take this big risk with us? And how can we like find out if that's something people are interested in and making sure we're building for real use cases rather than just our front side projects or our side projects. And so we decided that the classic way to incentivize people is that in addition to giving them cool new technology that would hopefully be better than what they were using, we would also pay them. And so we had Daniel from Dabblefox in for three months, and we paid him a stipend of $3,000 a month. And so the idea was this was someone who was working on their business. They weren't someone who needed a full-time job. Like $3,000 a month is not going to support you for very long in the Bay Area. Um, but it would give him the incentive to just come in, show up every day, and help us like push through all of the early problems that came up as he was building on Dark. Hmm. And was it worth $3,000 a month? Did you learn a lot? Oh, yeah, it was great. And when you think about that, um, $3,000 a month actually compared to what some companies will do if they say hire someone or have one of their founders spend all of their time trying to land one enterprise proof of contract to deal, it, it's, it's a lot of money, but it's not as much money as it might sound like. So I think it was a really good investment compared to lots of things we've done over time. Hmm. And um, have you repeated it or you just needed it that one time? So we definitely needed it the most the first time. And definitely, it's funny, I was thinking about this recently. When Daniel first started, it was pretty much one person was on Daniel duty and one person was building all of the big projects that came up that Daniel needed. So it's sort of we like either were immediately triaging or we were working on longer term investments. And so from that regard, a lot of those practices continue today. We still have all of our alpha users in a Slack channel and we try to be as responsive to people as possible and get them bug fixes as soon as is necessary. And then we've actually continued with having people in longer term as well. So we no longer pay people, but now we treat it as more of a developer in residence. And so the idea being we're still getting all of this real-time feedback. We get to have someone else from the community in and working with us and spending time with us. And they get a desk that they're able to sit at. We have some extra space in our office right now. Uh, so right now we have Costas in, who's a developer who's working on building an application he calls Song Battles. So people can put up two songs um, while they're at a party and the attendees of the party can vote on which song they want to hear next to the DJ. Hmm. Cool. Um, so you're in private alpha now. So you have how many people using the product? And is it for businesses, their businesses, or is it more just for side products? You're not supposed to use it in the private alpha for a business. So what we focused on with the private alpha is doing a mix of both. So we kind of think of them as having slightly different use cases. The advantage of having people building real businesses on top of Dark is we start to get that feedback of what people need as they grow, as they have more customers, as they like are trying to solve specific business problems. Um, and so from that regard, we've had people build complete backends for their business on top of Dark. So a great example of this is Chase Oliveri at Altitude. Uh, usealtitude.com. And so he builds an entire flight deal alerting system, which has by far the best flight deals I have ever seen. And so 
um, in dark, like that has his integrations to Stripe so people can pay him. It has his integrations to Mailgun so he's able to send out emails about the deals as they happen and things like that. And that full backend runs in dark. That's hmm. been important to us. And then Pix- very cool. Yeah. And then we also recently had Pixelkeet, um, which is a design firm that does like a lot of landing page design. We're actually working with them on something else. And they had an internal project tracker that they were using with their clients. And what they did was they built that backend on dark. So they'd be able to scale and open it up to other design firms to be able to use as well. Hmm. So how many people are in the private alpha at this point? Yeah, uh, I would say at this point, we have about 100 developers who we've let into the private alpha, the number can be a little bit misleading. So that's a mix. So those obviously, there's examples of people who've built entire businesses. There are people who've done really interesting side projects. There was Tokameki Unfollow, which was originally built on Glitch. It's a really nice website that allows you to individually see everyone you follow's tweets and then decide if you want to keep following them or not based on if their tweets spark joy, kind of going off of the KonMari trend. Hmm. And so all of the data store for that runs on dark now. It got a little big for Glitch. And so Julius moved over the data store. And so we have that. And then we also just have friends that we let on super early. Like I remember um, Peter Van Hardenberg, who was early at Heroku. At the beginning, I had him come over and was like, you have to try this new language. It can finally write FizzBuzz. And so like I'm hovering behind him, forcing him to write FizzBuzz in this like absolutely terrible tooling. And so he still has an account from that and sometimes plays with it. But like, so it's a mix of companies, people with side projects that were really interesting and needed dark for a specific reason. And they're just friends who helped us out along the way, like how you have one, for instance. Yep. Um, I, in talking to people about dark, which happens pretty often given that we work together, um, people are very eager to see it and play with it themselves. So um, maybe you can give people some sort of a timeline on when they'll be able to see it and play play with it. Yeah, so we're excited. People are going to be able to see it starting on September 16th, uh, with two exceptions. If you are coming to Strange Loop, we are having a party that Friday evening, the 13th, and we'll be showing it there, as well as all of our work on the whole code catalog with you. And then we're also going to be showing it very briefly at Full Stack Fest in Barcelona the first week in September. But after that, it'll be you'll be able to see the video on our website, be able to see everything on the 16th of September. Cool. And can people uh, play with it themselves yet, or we're not there yet? We're not there yet. I think that's one of the challenges with infrastructure is if you're opening up a bunch of infrastructure, like you you want to make sure people are building things that you can support well. So for our case, that's back-end web services. One of the things we've also seen uh, with Dark as we've put people into the private alpha is right now we're very optimized around someone coming in and knowing what they need to build and then building it. And so I know a lot of developers, like you play with a project by like kicking the tires and being like, oh, I'm just going to like make some random stuff. Dark definitely works better when you sit down and you're like, this is the API I need, or this is the data store I need, or this is like the API and the data store I need. But when you come in and know what you need to build, the experience is much better. Hmm. So it's so like Dark right now isn't very good for um, like explorative programming. I would say... Yeah, it's not as good for explorative programming yet. I think it's also by nature of the onboarding. While we've been in private alpha, I've been onboarding people by pairing with them, which is really enjoyable for me. I learn a ton about the product. People have like that FaceTime and can get to know us as a company a little bit in addition to just just seeing the product. Um, but we haven't really put that into something that is like an easy to learn onboarding tutorial, which you experienced once recently. And so I think that will help a lot with that too. I'm a little bit confused why you think dark wouldn't be good for explorative coding because it's like all about 
it has like a very tight feedback loop. Like you make a change, you, you see the result. It, it, it seems like that's one of the most necessary ingredients for exploratory coding. Yeah, I think actually that's a really good point. I think the the reason for that tension is we kind of, we've been calling it the dark flow recently, but dark works best if you either already have a front end you're passing data from, or if you're connecting to an external API that's going to be giving you a response. But we very much go from what is the end user going to see to what is the interface the end user is looking at. And mm. then you talk to dark for building out your backend to support that, which is a little bit different than how people classically think about a backend where they're like, okay, I'm going to like get all my models set up. But in dark, getting all of your data store set up, you're going to be like, okay, I built a bunch of data stores in five minutes and like, cool. Like it's not, it's not an exciting experience just because it's so easy, which is great <laughs> when you're just trying to get it shipped. But like as a fun thing to do, it's not like super fun to type out a schema. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I feel like then like the way to phrase it is that, yeah, backend people, I guess, won't have that much fun built, I guess, or phrasing it the other way, um, front end people uh, would, I guess, have a lot of fun building like uh, exploratory things with it. Yeah. And I think backend people would too, but they just have to flip like, and not all backend people are this way, but if you start from the perspective of, I'm going to start with my front end, get my front end going, and then use that to play with the dark, then you would have a really good exploratory time. Hmm. That's fun. Uh, I guess that, that kind of makes, makes uh, I feel like that's what your first tutorial will probably look like, right? You'll like supply people with the front end code and then like work, th- work with them through the tutorial to how to write the back end code. Yeah, exactly. And that's how we do onboarding now too. So um, I wanted to, uh, like, I guess, explain to the audience how you and I started working together. Um, I think it started when you reached out almost two years ago. Um, I think one of the reasons we reached, reached out to you, though, was like you seemed like the obvious person to talk to for the thing we were curious about, where we wanted to see like lots of interesting best-in-class things from lots of developer tools that were happening, and specifically around how they felt and what felt good and what felt bad to serve as inspiration for what we were doing. Yeah, so I think there are like two interesting uh, things about that idea you had to like, survey the space. I guess the first one is is the idea of survey surveying the space at all. I maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think many companies do that. Uh, like I guess particularly from the developer tools perspective, I don't I don't know any because because that's the space I know best. I don't know any other tools that have done a, like a survey thoroughly the way the way you, we have. Um, so yeah, where'd you come up with that idea? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this Wh- is why? actually at the one of the ways I learn is I like to have lots of inputs to kind of build out a system and a mental model for how things work. And so I think that's partially like a personal learning choice. And so for me, that's like, okay, let's see all of the things that we've tried before, because we don't want to just go either make the same mistakes, or we don't want to do exactly the same thing. We just want to be well informed about what has happened and why. And that was important to me, especially having not been working in developer tools recently. Uh, I think another piece of it is a lot of times, doing research or doing surveys like that gets a bad rap because people think of it as, oh, you're just like making a competitive landscape diagram. Like that's such an MBA thing. And I think that's not the interesting part about looking at other tools at all. I think it's much more you want to look at them for that qualitative sense of what are the trends for where we're going? What are things that people are really enjoying? Why do they really enjoy these things? And much more from like this human understanding part of how we're interacting with our tools. I think in developer tools, it was also in particular because we see innovation across so many spaces. So you have academics um, like Cyrus working on Hazel who are thinking about it from that perspective. You have people who are building 
very pragmatic things or people who are building like a tool that was originally just intended for themselves. Then it turns out that everyone uses it. You have people who are trying to build companies around developer tools and you obviously like have the big cloud players doing a bunch of things as well. And so it's, it's much more disparate than you see in a lot of other spaces. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I find it, it's kind of a beautiful, a beautiful thing. It's like hobbyists and academics and, and startups and big companies. Yeah. It's cool. I was also really interested in, it was like one of the things that's different about developer tools is you're building tools for people who are experts at something already. And so I knew I'd already taken a bunch of inspiration from what we did at Lola because we were building tools for travel agents who are experts at booking travel. And so I wanted to also be looking at expert tools across the board, not just necessarily for developers, where when you think about like tools like origami, which is really focused on designers rather than developers, or things like Photoshop or Sketch or Figma or all of kind of those spaces as well, those can also inform what you do in a developer space. Um, so I guess maybe if you had to pick one or two of your favorite tools that we review that you'd recommend for people to look at when, when the whole code catalog is public, what would you recommend? Oh, this is so hard. I like them all. Um, I would definitely recommend looking at Coda. I think it's really interesting to think about the contrasting approaches between trying to add more programming technologies into office-related tools compared to starting with a programming tool and then figuring out how to make it more accessible over time. Um, I think I'm also biased there just because I worked on Microsoft Office before. Like That space has always been a really interesting hmm. space for me. Um, so I'd say Coda is definitely one in that regard. I guess since I've also already mentioned it, Hazel is a good one if you want to see more of an academic approach. And then I think I would also say Eve, just because that's sort of the classic one. I really admired how much they were willing to try and experiment, share everything they learned so publicly. Like pretty much the opposite approach of what we did at the very beginning was they were working all the time in public and showing everyone everything they learned as they went, as opposed to us kind of spending a bunch of time learning. And now we're trying to share as much as we can. And so I think theirs is really interesting as well. They're also interesting for different reasons. Like, I think if you want to get into, like, the history and, like, one of the things I originally loved, like, we did HyperCard. And I loved HyperCard so much in elementary school. And I think that was, like, one of those things where I think, actually, the reason I wanted to work on Microsoft Office was, for me, PowerPoint was the next best thing to HyperCard when HyperCard went away. Uh, I'm not wow. really sure why I went the PowerPoint direction instead of, like, a programming language direction. But I spent a lot of time in, like, the PowerPoint object model, like scripting how to move around between different slides with buttons, basically emulating HyperCard. Mm. Um, so I think from the historical standpoint, HyperCard is really interesting. I think from the community standpoint, Glitch is really interesting. I think from like the structured editor perspective, Hazel is really interesting. I think from the like, how do you take something that feels a little bit more like Scratch and get it in a browser where people can try it experience? Uh, Revlet is really interesting. I think that was your comment on it as well. Is like It's like Scratch for people who are slightly older and don't want to be using like this tool that was designed for children, uh, which I think, I mean, I'm totally fine. Mm -hmm. like, I like Lego robots. I like many programming tools that were designed for children. I think they're all really cool. But um, I think Revlet does like up a level that a little bit. Um, I guess, again, like if you're more on the academic side, small talk is interesting. They're all interesting for different reasons. And so I guess I would say when you're looking at the whole code catalog and figuring out what to dig into, I would go for something that you personally, like a space that you're interested in. I think that's like when I get the most out of it is when I start from like other concepts I'm already thinking about. So um, uh, maybe talk about why you decided to make it all this research public uh, and like put, put together the catalog. Uh, I was very excited when, when uh, that was, when I heard that was what was gonna happen. 
Uh, I think actually, I think part of it was like, we kept doing it and I was excited and I would talk about our work with people who visited our office all the time or other people who are interested in the space. And then it became like, oh, I'm like occasionally like copy pasting individual things and sending them to people or talking to people about individual tools that we've worked on. Um, but we, we assembled the research more as, as background for ourselves and because we wanted to know state of the art, but we want everyone else to have that as well and be able to work from that and kind of see where we're getting to as an entire industry of people who are trying to make the experience of coding better. And so obviously our approach at dark for making coding better is having a full language and then figuring out how to make that uh, not have as much accidental complexity when you're using it, really getting down into that essence of what it is to code. And other people are looking at it from how can we kind of sneak code in through our office tools that we're already using. Um, but yeah, I think all of us are trying to give more people the ability to to compute things in the way that they want to and be able to build their own tooling. And I think having access to that is good. Um, before we sign off, uh, other places on the internet uh, that we could uh, link to you um, or anything. And um, if there's anything that you wanted um, people to reach out for, like if you, uh, maybe at this residency you mentioned, or if you're hiring or other things like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So we're our dark website is darklang.com and we are at darkling on twitter and then i personally am ellen chisa on twitter i'm in steve's slack group you're welcome to talk to me there i feel like the conversation moves very quickly but you can dm me and i will respond um and then i'm just ellen <laughs> at darklang.com we are definitely hiring um obviously lots of the stuff like steve said is an alpha so there are many bugs to fix there are many features that are basically stubs that we want to keep working on there are many exciting problems still to solve um, so that's great. In particular, right now, we're looking for more engineers, a developer evangelist, possibly a VP of engineering. If anyone happens to be listening, he's excited about that. Um, so yeah, definitely reach out to me for any of those. Great. Uh, well, thanks for talking. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for doing all this work with us. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to finally have you on the podcast. Yeah, I've been meaning to do this podcast for for ages. I, I feel there's a there's a uh, email in my in my inbox about this for like a year now. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys have um, been keeping things under wraps while you're working out some of the the details. So I'm excited now, yeah. finally, to share some some things about Dark. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm excited to to be sharing them as well. So um, right before we get into the details of Dark, I wanted to just get a bit about your background because you've been in mm -hmm. developer tools for a while, but I want to start maybe before, just tell us a bit about you and then what brought you to Circle and then, and then Dark. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so my, uh, my background, I, uh, I did an undergrad in CS and I discovered that I really loved compilers. Uh, and so then I did a PhD in compilers and then went to work uh, for uh, Mozilla uh, on their JavaScript compiler team. And after I was there about a year, um, I, I got tired of um, of a particular tool that we were using at Mozilla, uh, which was essentially their CI tool. Uh, and so I started CircleCI in about 2011 um, to, to you know, do CI. Uh, and I did that, I, I stayed there for about four years. Um, and then I took a break and started thinking about like, what am I, what am I doing next? Um, and eventually, uh, decided to, 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 to work on fixing everything, which became dark. Cool. Yeah, I didn't realize that um, the idea from Circle came from the experiences at Mozilla. It's interesting. Yeah, well, the 
I, I had I had done a, a Y Combinator startup uh, before uh, between Mozilla and, and the PhD, and one of the things that that was said to me at the time was like, "Why don't you do compilers as a service?" Uh, and I kind of had no idea what that was. And then after spending about a year, the uh, the fact that I was frustrated with this tool, and it's like, "Oh, this compilers as a service thing kind of kind of makes sense." Hmm. Yeah, and I guess that's related to Dark. Dark is also a bit of a compiler yeah, as a service. Yeah. Uh, I mean, essentially, uh, my, my career is, is getting people to, to give me millions of dollars to build uh, fun compiler tools. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, very, very sneaky. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they don't know I enjoy it. They think it's about the money. Mm. You're just an academic at heart, just wanting to build compilers. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah the uh, t tenure is a bad place to do it, but... Uh, uh, but industry is a, is a good place to do it. I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, a lot of programmers, know what CircleCI mm -hmm. is. Um, and based on a few of the essays you wrote while you were at CircleCI, like uh, lambasting all the complexity in normal mm -hmm. de deployment, it, I, I feel like yep. th those were kind of where the seeds of Dark came from. Is that accurate? Um, so, yes, uh, uh, a lot of it. Um, the... It's it's funny at, at the time. So, so the blog post that, that I think you're you're referring to is, is it's the future, mm -hmm. um, and at the time I was I was actually a believer. Like I was like I see why this why this Docker thing is useful. I understand orchestration. Like I I, I honestly, you know, was was in the camp that this was the future, and I, I wrote a follow up to it. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that I realized, oh shit. Uh, you know, the, 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 this is way too much. There's way too much complexity, and it, it combined with with a couple of other ideas that I that I'd had um, about how hard it was to build uh, internal tools um, and flaws in sort of existing programming paradigms, and how, how we're trying to um, build cloud things with languages that are that are designed for single machines, um, and and sort of that that impedance mismatch and and lack of abstraction hmm. uh, so all, all of those combined into one and, and uh, became dark cool yeah um, so I didn't realize that the essay you were originally it wasn't actually sarcastic originally uh, so no it, it was sarcastic but but in a in a um, tongue-in-cheek uh, you know we're all friends here sort of tone hmm. but I wrote a follow-up that. Uh, called it really is the future where where I talked about like why containerization is important and, and orchestration is important and, and how I actually believe that this set of tools is the future and, and that the um, that the problems that they solve are real yeah. and the problems that they solve are real it just turns out that the solution is is too complex hmm. okay so I think that's a perfect transition to um, my next question I want to talk about complexity uh, mm -hmm. because it's something that a lot of people, a lot of programmers talk about in general, but mm -hmm. um, particularly us folks trying to make programming better, we talk a lot mm -hmm. about this distinction between essential complexity and accidental complexity that, yep. that comes from Fred, Fred Brooks's essay, which he in yep. turn borrows all the way back from Aristotle, this like distinction between yeah. essence, essence and an incident or accident. Mm. And part of- Interesting, I didn't know that connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and I didn't realize that connection either. Um, but I was talking to a friend who's a philosopher about, about this sort of work, mm -hmm. and he was like, 
do you even know what essence is? Like Aristotelian essence? And I was like, that's not what he's talking about. But then I went back to the Fred Brooks essay and he, there's the word yeah. Aristotle right there. He, he, <laughs> he says like, I'm, like he, he specifically, he's, uh, yeah, Fred Brooks is a, I think part of the reason we still reference him is because he's so like, well read <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. like can draw on all those big ideas from, uh, anyways, philosophy. So anyways, um, I, I've, be, I've become, become to like wanting, want to drill a little bit deeper into like what is the difference mm-hmm. between essential and accidental complexity because mm-hmm. I think, as you were just saying like uh, the problems that Docker and orchestration solved are real problems so it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to say that they're not part of essential mm-hmm. complexity uh, yeah. but then I guess if you use a, a tool like Dark clearly they're not part of the essence of Dark so uh, right right yeah so how, how do yeah you and I, I think one of the things that that's um, makes Dark what it is is that we draw an extremely wide uh, bound around around accidental complexity, or, or maybe an extremely narrow one around essential complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you have someone that tells you that, like you know, architecture or infrastructure um, is is complexity, uh, or sorry, is essential complexity, I'm extremely um, I'm extremely skeptical. And and the thing we keep coming back to is that. You're, the thing that you want to do with uh, with a backend, so, so, so Dark is for backends, um, you want to receive data, you want to send data, you want to process data, and you want to store or query data. And you know, the, 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 there isn't a, a orchestrating the services that, that do that in, in, in that description of what you're trying to do. If you ask someone to describe their app, um, you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be an app that talks to an iPhone and saves some data and and you know sends out some notifications or something like that, and and there's going to be you know no mention of Kafka, um, or um, or Postgres or, or or something along that. Well, so I guess to push um, to like use your own definition against you, uh, if mm-hmm. someone uh, was designing an iPhone app, I don't think there'd be any mention of HTTP handlers or databases either. They they talk sure, more abstractly sure. about you know, saving data somewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And I think the, um, uh, the uh, there's a difference for dark between uh, between what we're shipping today and, and what we think of as of accidental complexity. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I think the, the question sort of uh, uh, points out that, that you've seen dark, uh, whereas most of your listeners won't, but the, uh, in dark, we certainly have, um, have certain like HTTP concepts and, and and that kind of thing, which uh, as as Dark expands over the next uh, no, decade or so, um, you know, may go away uh, if if we can. Oh, that's very exciting! Cool. Oh. Well, so I mean, the, 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 there there's what we're launching, and and you know what Dark will be in in the short term, and then there's the the vision of of getting rid of accidental complexity, and uh, I think. Uh, getting rid of all accidental complexity, and we we talk about making dark uh, or d- dark making coding hundred x better. It's it's very much a um, uh, computer on every desktop kind of vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not a claim that we have achieved this, but but rather that 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 we are going to do that, and and our current work is is in service of it. Mm, okay, yeah, that's a very important <laughs> distinction to make because I think I, mm-hmm. I even saw people in Hacker News comments. Uh, you know, claim you know, saying things like you know, "There's no way they've done this," uh, and so it's important yeah, to yeah, upfront and, that you have and, and and that it, that is accurate. Um, I I would say we're currently in uh, you know, d- d- depending on on uh, you know someone's level of of, of expertise, we're, we're we're maybe 
two, three, four X uh, better, which which honestly is like you know, kind of phenomenal. People people make companies that 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 that, uh, that make things ten percent better and, and and they're successful. Um, but then they also uh, or we we are currently also bringing our own complexity, um, which which tampers that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. You you remove a lot of complexity from other tools, but there's dark specific new complexity that you're adding to this space. Right, right. And and most of that is is things that you can't achieve yet. Uh, things that um, things that need to be simplified more. Uh, you know, cut the hacks and and, and shortcuts to to get to to launch, etc. So uh, I, I think now's a good time before we get too much into the weeds to describe dark, um, I, I guess conceptually, the, the, the things you can do in it now, what it's built for, mm-hmm. and then visually just describe kind of what the screen looks like and how you can interact with it. Mm-hmm. So um, our, uh, taking it from, from accidental complexity, our, our purpose with dark was to make, um, uh, was to make backends really easily. Uh, and the way that we determined that, that, that we can remove all this, all this complexity um, is by having a holistic editor, programming language, and infrastructure. So Dark fundamentally is, is a, an editor, which, which you, can, you access via your browser, um, in which you write the Dark programming language, um, and which is instantly deployed to Dark infrastructure. So how that, how that looks uh, when you go um, uh, when you go to the editor, you'll, you'll go to darklang.com slash, you know, your, uh, your app, um, and you'll be presented with an editor, which is, which is just a black screen and a sidebar. Uh, our, our current, uh, metaphor, which is, which is not a long-term one, but is, is the, the one today is a, is a canvas. And so there's little bits of code on the, uh, on the screen. Um, and you, uh, add new bits of code, and the the, the bits of code are uh, specifically handlers uh, and databases. And the um, the handlers are oh, we're describing it visually. So uh, handlers. So so let's say that there's a bunch of HTTP handlers, um, and they have um, a, a specification for what they are: the 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 URL and 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 the method at the top, and then code in the body. Uh, and it's you know, visually everything's very dark, uh, obviously. <laughs> uh, you know, some shade of, of, of black for the background, some other shade of black for, for the code. Will uh, there be then, a light mode? Is, it, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, we're, we're joking about like maybe we should make light mode for everything, and then whenever anyone asks about uh, why is it called dark, and you know when it's actually light, we're like just like feign ignorance. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, 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 there will of course be a light mode. Um, okay. So, so what 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 you're writing in in these handlers, like the the code that you're writing, looks a lot like code. Um, there's the uh, like it looks a lot like modern code. You're you're you know you're typing let x equals five, let y equals ten, you know x and does plus it y. Look most similar to like OCaml, Haskell. I, I don't know. Which uh, it so yeah, it, it it looks a bit like both. Um, little bit of of tidied up the the OCaml syntax. Um, there's uh, it, it's definitely based on on functional languages, uh, but we're we're currently leaning in a uh, functional imperative direction, uh, which means that that, that 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 we're stepping a little bit back from from pure functional, um, and 
I mean, we're, we're really trying to simplify how, how people code, and there's a lot of things in functional languages that, that, that don't simplify uh, how people code, so we're, we're trying to you know, separate the two. Got it. Um, so I thought um, one way to kind of explore Dark is to talk about some of the big pieces or big ideas behind it. Mm -hmm. um, so may, uh, maybe the, the word deployless is a good place to start. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, um, I, I, I always bring it back to, to you know, the, the, the big picture. Um, so the, the big picture um, with Dark is, is what specific accidental complexity is it that we're addressing today? Um, and the, the two major parts of accidental complexity that, that, we're, that Dark in its current form deal with is the deployment complexity and the infrastructure complexity. The uh, there's two other major parts. One is is API complexity, uh, and the other is sort of the tooling complexity uh, that that we're not solving uh, as much today as, as as the other two. So, getting rid of that deployment complexity is is what we're calling deployless, um, and and it's it's deployless in in the way that that's you know uh, serverless. Uh, you know, the, the, with serverless, there's still servers, <laughs> um, but you don't think about servers the same way. Uh, with with deploy list, I mean, th there's still a deploy step, but that that deploy step is is cut to the smallest possible thing. And uh, the, the blog post I wrote about this was how dark deploys in 50 milliseconds, and 50 milliseconds is literally you know the round trip time to the to the server. Um, so it's it's the smallest amount of time it could possibly be, uh, and that that's what we were going for. Um, and I think that's that's where the the name deploy list, which we didn't actually coin, uh, came from. Cool. Yeah. Um... I think that kind of leads us well into uh, another big technology that enables the deploy list, the structured editor, mm -hmm. and why and why you chose yeah. that that piece of technology. So we we, we, we chose a structured editor for, for two reasons. One one that um, deploy list was what we were going for, and we knew it couldn't be deploy list if we were taking the current um, the current way of writing code or the the, the, the way of deploying code. So so today you. You know, take a bunch of code. Uh, you push it to GitHub. It gets put in a in a package uh, by your by your CI, um, and and that package is maybe a Docker container, and it gets sent to a registry, and then gets pulled in by your orchestration. And you can you can you can deploy other ways. You know, you can do a Heroku deploy or, or, or a DigitalOcean thing. Or yeah, you know, the, the, there's a bunch of different stuff, but but the, the, they all end up in, in in the thing of take all of your code, put it in a box, replace the old box with the new box, <laughs> and uh, we said, all right, what is the smallest possible unit of, of deployment? Uh, and the smallest possible unit is, you know, the thing that you just typed, the, the keystroke that, that, uh, that you typed, uh, and that's what we're deploying. And in order to do that, if you were to use today's technology, every keystroke you type, you'd still have to like package up the whole thing, put it in a box, put the box on the server and, and, and stuff. So we're like, okay, how, ca how can we, how can we make it so that uh, people can safely write code, and and and, and that's uh, that's the tie of the structural editor. The structural editor makes it uh, such that you never have your code in some sort of like structurally invalid um, way. Um, so, so like, there's no syntax. Uh, it is not possible to have a syntax error to have a parse error, uh, and so you can't just you know take this working code and then like mash the keys uh, and. Uh, and end up in a in a bad place. If you if you 
uh, mash the keys in dark and you know assuming you don't hit backspace uh, very much uh, you'll probably end up with, with still a working program <laughs> that's funny um, so um, but I'm like of course like the immediate question that people ask is every programmer is deploying to production like all the time. Mm -hmm. This must be chaos. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've started trying to, to define what, what, what deploy list means. Um, and uh, I, I realized that this was an important thing to, to bring into deploy list. Because it's not, it's not just like, it's not just deploy list to rsync to, to your server. Um, a key part of it is that the tooling that you're using allows you to do this safely. Um, and by safely, I mean that you don't, you know, take down the site. Um, I, I was going to say frequently, but actually, I mean at all. That, that 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 there's a structure that prevents you from taking down the site. And and Dark uh, mostly uses feature flags. We have a bunch of we have a bunch of tools around this. Um, you know, function versioning, uh, feature flags, language versioning, um, database migrations. The, 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 those are kind of the the main things. But the the point is that 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 we're integrated the tooling um, that that has the essential complexity of a deployment uh, and that has almost none of the accidental complexity. Okay, so um, I think maybe I just want to spell that out a little bit mm -hmm. in yeah. terms of the feature flags. So feature, f you, you've, taken, you've taken a feature, uh, sorry, you've taken um, a, a feature, I guess. Feature flags themselves are a feature of like a programming tool chain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and um, you're using them in a in like you're overloading them. You're using them uh, as like almost like branches. Uh, yes. So um, where 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 we're kind of starting from here is is the realization that that over the last ten years, for anyone who's doing proper uh, continuous delivery or continuous deployment, you know, whichever whichever word you you prefer, um, the there's a separation of getting the code onto the server from enabling that code for users. Um, and the realization comes that, that once, you, once you have that full separation, which you know, typically uses feature flags, um, then the actual getting the code onto the server is, is not important. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it has to get there. It's, it still has to be done. Uh, but it, it, it provides risk, and it, does, it it's not it's not an essential part of how people think uh, of of their interaction with their users. The way people think of their their interactions with their users when when they deploy things is you know is is this going to break users? Is this change going to be okay uh, for users? Is it going to cause them downtime? Uh, how do we make sure that the right people see it at the start and, and um, that, that we have a slow rollout and that we're able to be sure that, that making this change does not, uh, does not like take the site down and, 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 and so on. Got it, got it. So fe feature flags, uh, you know, this sort of a glorified if statement. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's, it's an if statement that, that you can modify from, from outside the code in, 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 in a certain sense. Um, and and yeah, that's that's the tool. Um, that's the main tool 
uh, that we use. So if you have a piece of code in production, uh, you wrap it in a feature flag, and, and doing so is is atomic because of our because of our structured editor and and also because of our language. There's no there's no stage at which you go through where like the code doesn't work. So you add a feature flag, you add the conditions for the feature flag, you add the new code. Um, maybe you just like cutting and pasting and and, and changing you know a character or two, um, but you you can do it fairly fine grained, um, and then you know. You enable it maybe just for yourself, maybe for your team, for your QA team, or, or maybe it's it's such low risk that that, that you're enabling it for, for everyone at once, and, and then you uh, you mark it as done, and it is in production. Yeah, so I think um, there's a part about uh, dark feature flags in production that I didn't quite get until you just explained it. Um, mm -hmm. So when you when you start using dark uh, the tool, every change you make unless you put it behind a feature flag, is in production, which is exactly what you want when you're starting a project and nobody's using it. Yeah. Um, but then um, the confusing bit is that we all, and anyone who's worked on a production tool knows that once you have people using it, you want the reverse workflow, like any change you make should yeah. by default be behind a feature flag. Um, yeah, exactly. But, but that isn't how Dark defaults today. Um, so the, 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 there's two phases. Uh, and and any piece of code will will go through those phases. Like they they aren't company lifecycle phases. They they're like almost like piece of code phases. Um, and uh, the first phase is no one is using it. It's it's a new feature. It's a new something. Um, and so you you can basically do whatever you like in in in, in that case because you're you're the only user. Um, so you're you're starting from a blank canvas for for this new page, let's say, or this new API. Um, and you you type it all out, uh, and you know iterate, and, and you can completely delete it. No one cares because because there's no users. The second phase is you've got this thing that hundreds or thousands or millions of people are using, and you have to be extremely careful uh, with how you roll changes out to that. And this is this is the part of coding today that 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 people have almost no support for, um, where we write all of our code today as if as if it was the first one. Uh, in dark, there's there's two separate modes for that. Um, when you have users, all of your handlers lock, uh, and by lock I mean that you can't make changes to them. Hmm. Uh, and then you must make changes by a feature flag. And then opening a feature flag gives you the first state again. You're 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 in this fresh paradise because no one's using it. Uh, and then once people start using that, you know, again, it it, it, it goes into that um, it goes into that lock state. Got it. Oh, okay. I didn't. Um, I guess I've never built a dark thing with users, so I, it never triggered that for me. That's cool. Uh, I, I'm I'm not being particularly careful here about like dark division and and dark mm. the, the current state today. I see. Um, so we don't automatically lock today, um, which is probably why you didn't see it. I see. So like. Uh, your customer will tell you, "I have users now," and then you'll 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 switch the mode for them. Um, so so they can they can lock it themselves. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and I, I, the, the the issue today is that, is that we're not one hundred percent happy with our feature flag implementation, hmm. um, and so we don't want to impose it on everyone. So people can use it, but they don't use it as much as as we would like because there the, the, there's still some product and 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 tech uh, that. That, that needs to be done to make that like a really, really good experience. Um, but that's the plan. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the thing that I have begun to realize is that um, 
the distinction, like the, the incidental complexity you've removed is that normally you would get the code working on your own physical computer mm-hmm. and then you would figure out a way to get it working in some container and then you have to like actually deploy it to some other service and then orchestrate it. So it was like this whole um, rigmarole to get it working like from mm-hmm. your local physical computer to some, yeah, yeah. some other place. Uh, and so the, the, distinct, the real distinction Dark makes is that there's no physical computer involved. So it's, yeah. it's always working on other people's computers. And then whenever it is that you want to like turn the switch to get it like shown to users or not shown to users, th- yeah. that's like up to you. It's like that, that, that's like unrelated. Right. But the actual problem you solved is that we're always working in the cloud. Yes, yes. So we're, we're, we're always working. And then these are uh, tools that are built for the, the problem that you actually want, the, the, the essential complexity of, of building features is when do we is when do we give this to users, not how do we get this to that machine over there. Totally. Yeah, okay. That that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's very compelling. Um, so then I guess a follow-up question is if you're most of the time developing so you, you explained earlier that like part of the reason you wanted uh, structured editors is so to like enable this smallest unit of compilation thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but given that most of the time people are going to be d- adding new features behind feature flags, couldn't mm-hmm. um, you get rid of the structured editor and then just like whatever little bit of text they put behind the feature flag, just, just send that little bit of text over? Like o- only if it parses, right? Um, yes and no. The uh, I, I think that someone could do something roughly like that. Um, it would have uh, it would take a great deal of work to make that to make that effective. Um, the The main things that 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 break with that. So 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 one, uh, you've got this parser, and now you've got now you've got an AST, uh, and in fact you've got you've got two ASTs. Um, so AST is the abstract syntax tree, which is the the representation of the program. So you've got you've got the representation of the program that's in production, and you've got the representation of the program on on the users thing that 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 was just parsed. Um, what is the distinction between these two things? Uh, do, do, do they have a mapping to the other? I mean, they, they should, right? Because you've, you've only made one change, but they might not. Um, so the you know, if you've got this pure textual thing, it's hard to sync up mm-hmm. the old text to the new text. Uh, you know, if you've wrapped something in an if statement, for example, um, might be a good example of that. And um, there, you know, the, the textual mapping algorithms uh, are around that are are challenging uh, and and you know not not particularly advanced. Mm. Um, so it's keeping track of the identifiers of each part of the AST. Yes, yeah, so I mean in, in in dark everything has everything has an identifier. So you make a change, you know, you're making a change to this to this identifier, and you don't see the identifiers. They're you know they're they're, they're IDs. They're mm. they're not displayed in in the code, um, and. I'm not saying that you couldn't do it without that, but it certainly it certainly simplifies it. Um, the I mean, there's a couple of other benefits that uh, that it brings, uh, notably the um, the fact that the editor uh, you that you can't have a syntax error that that it isn't possible to have a syntax error. Um, but the thing that was interesting to us is I, I thought this I thought the structured editor by itself would 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 provide this, but it actually turns out that we need a ton of language features as well. So uh, feature flags are not really an editor feature so much as they are a language feature with, with editor support. Um, so the, the, there's a, 
there's a semantics to every incomplete program um, mm-hmm. and that that semantics of, of incomplete programs the fact that that dark represents incomplete programs uh, turns out to be really important for this sort of editing in, in the cloud because otherwise you have a program in in an incomplete state and you're you're con- and you're working with text to get it to a complete state and it might be you know it might be hours between those two um, with dark the language and editor I guess um, there is never there is an incomplete state, but all of those are fully representable and, and have full semantics. I see. So it's the uh, automatic hole insertion from Cyrus's work. Uh, very, very similar to um, uh, to the Hazel stuff, yes. Cool. Um, yeah, because I think that's what he talked about. The reason you need a structured editor, if you want to solve what he called the gap problem of never having an incomplete state, is that uh, mm-hmm. you have to automatically insert the hole. So if you like 5 plus... Yeah. Um, in our mind, there's a hole yep. there, but the computer doesn't realize that, that there's a hole there. So, right. Um, like you could type a question mark there or an underbar there, but um, a structured mm-hmm. editor would do that for you automatically. So, yeah. Is that what you were saying, and, and, and or th- is there something else? Uh, so, 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 so it's 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 that, but the, it uh, th- there's a lot more than that. So, um, let's say let's say that that you're in a text editor today and you're writing an if statement. You're going to write if space, you know, some condition. And you're going to have no uh, tooling support while you're writing that condition uh, because it hasn't filled out the then, the the hole for the then, and the else, and the hole for the else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be in an incomplete parse state until you get, you know, the braces in place and, 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 and the, the new lines in mm-hmm. place and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and, and in dark, when you type if, you know that that creates the, a, a fully structured if statement similar to you know IntelliJ or something might, um, and the semantic analysis keeps running as you're writing that code, uh, as you're writing the condition. So we're we're literally running your code to show you the re- the, the results uh, uh, of of what that execution would be, and to, to show you things like uh, like type errors and and that kind of thing. And you need you need that um, like you need to your engine to understand what it means to be in this incomplete state uh, and if you look at you know something like uh, like languages that have specs and they have they have like this you know undefined behavior uh, where, where sometimes for even complete programs they don't know what the meaning of a particular program is uh, and, and in dark every program has uh, has a meaning and, and I, I'm pretty sure that that's uh, that that's essential to, to having at the very least a good experience here Hmm. Okay, so I, I think I've been convinced why, uh, in order to solve the problems you're trying to solve, you need a structured editor. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it's a hard thing to build. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So m- maybe because um, it hasn't really succeeded yet. Like, there's no. I guess maybe mm-hmm. the, the most successful one that I could think of is, is Scratch, the, the blocks-based mm-hmm. one. Um, well, Excel. Well, Excel isn't, in my opinion, structured because you're typing like the formulas all in text. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I guess it. Uh, yeah. A lot of the program structure is structured, but the 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 final snippet of code is. I mean, I I, I guess well, I guess because like, would you, you call have text editing for an expression, you, and then each cell is an expression? Would you call Jupyter notebooks or observable observable notebooks um, structured editors because they have cells that you type? Big blocks of code in. 
I guess I wouldn't. Uh, but I, I'm um, with you that like that. Ex- yeah, I, I I I see what you're saying there. Like if you were if you were to use Jupyter notebooks to write very small blocks of code and and there was a little bit of text editing in those blocks, I'd, I'd be willing to call that a structured editor. I see. Okay, so I guess it's a, a bit of a spectrumy thing. How how yeah, how yeah, structured sure. is the editor? Right, 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 right. I mean, so the first uh, structured editor that, that that I used and that that I really loved was was Paredit, mm. um, which is which is a mode for Emacs for writing Lisp in. Uh, and that, I mean, partially this is because Lisp is, is so, um, you know, just, just doesn't have very much structure. But uh, it it amazed me how little it did and how amazing that was. Like how, how much it could do with so little. Essentially what, what it does is it, it um, whenever you insert a parens, it, it inserts the, the closing parens and it puts your, your cursor in the right place. And then it has... Uh, commands for like pull the next expression into the um, into the into the parens, uh, and it made sure that your program was always well formed, um, which for for Lisp is really important. You you uh, it, it completely took away all the downsides of Lisp or all the parentheses related downsides <laughs> of Lisp, uh, and and I was I was like really impressed with this. So question: um, uh, How does it know where to yeah. put the closing paren in like ambiguous cases where it could go in a few different spots? Well, so it's uh, your 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 choices. We're talking about par edit here, yeah. Right? Yeah. So so your your choices. Uh, you insert an open parens, and it will insert the closed parens right here, and then your cursor is inside that, and use the command to like pull more things into got it. it. Got it. Cool. Um, and or the other thing is you you can select uh, a bunch of text, uh, and it will you know figure out what expression that text is in and wrap the whole thing with it. That that's another command to that uh, that. That you have, or you, you can unwrap as well, and I think that that works because Lisp is, is so simple that there's there's no more syntax than that. Mm. So, um, but when you're building a structured editor for like a language with, uh, I guess, more complicated syntax like Dark or Haskell, yeah, uh, yeah, it seems based on the amount of effort I've seen people put behind it, and yet uh, how less than ideal the, the like outcome is. It seems mm-hmm. like it's a really hard thing to do. And when I when I tried my myself building a JavaScript structured editor, it was like, wow, mm-hmm. this is harder, than, way harder than I thought. Yeah. Um, so we uh, we're on probably the uh, maybe it's the second or the third iteration, uh, and I think you haven't used our new Fluid editor, right? You've only used the, the existing editor. I I um, the, the default. Editor. I spent maybe twenty minutes in the the new editor. Okay. Um, so. Uh, the our, our progression was that we started with with this thing that was totally new, which was like a graph-based editing, and that that sort of went nowhere. And we spent a couple of months on that, and then um, then we had this this uh, you know, regular-looking AST-based editor uh, where you were filling in holes, uh, and and that that's the the, the default editor today. Um, and we realized that there's a whole bunch of problems with filling in holes. Uh, mostly that you you actually want to make like larger scale changes to things, and you don't necessarily want to go to a uh, you know an editor command to to add a let above. Like you know, m- m- most common feature we had is how do I insert code above the above the current line? Um, and so we realized that 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 we were doing it we we're doing it totally wrong. And we, we we had this this vision of all right, what if it what if it's still structured, but it feels like code, and, and that's why we call it fluid. You know, feels fluid. Um, so Fluid is, is still, it's it's not quite done. Uh, it's currently about 4,000 lines. So uh, 4,000 lines of OCaml. Uh, 
Um, so in terms of, of your question of like, is it hard? Yes, it's absolutely hard. Um, there's, there's so many edge cases um, and there's, there's so many like, you know, if I'm here and I press this character, what is the thing that I'm trying to do? Um, and the, the result for us has been, has been really, really good. Um, like it feels really good. And the, um, it's interesting that when we look at what some other people in, in the space are doing, I saw someone uh, come up with this thing called a tofu JS. Uh, and and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an experiment uh, that, uh, that this guy, Gregor, did. Um, and it's, it's really nice. Uh, at least the demo is really nice. I, th I think it you know, doesn't, doesn't do all that much. But the, uh, it turns out like it does, it does basically the, the same as us and has, has a lot of the same design principles as us. And it, it's really cool. Oh, interesting. Um, is, is Tofu JS a projection editor for JavaScript or for his own language? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a demo of, of how one could be. I don't think it's a it's a full editor. Got it. Because part of one, one question I wanted to ask is, um, given that it's so hard, will, is there do you see any way for it to be done in a language agnostic way, and then um, everyone could just use it, kind of like CodeMirror, for example? Could it be done in a language agnostic way? Um, I think I think it would be hard. Um, I mean, I, sort of in, in the same way that like language server protocol is is, is hard. Um, you know, doing it for one language is one thing. Doing it for as a generalized thing. Uh, the so what what we have is like a giant state machine of. You know, when you come in at the when you're in this state and you press this input, you know what what do you do? And most of those are probably not generalizable. Hmm. There's the, like the the default case of I press a character and and you know it gets inserted where where the cursor is uh, is probably generalizable. And the uh, you know the the 500 edge cases uh, probably less so. Uh, and they, they differ for every language and the, all the languages the different syntaxes. I would not enjoy that project. <laughs> that, 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 this sounds like a not fun project. That the compiler guy is uh, calling quits. <laughs> Dangerous. Yeah, well, so one of the things I always hate about compilers is parsers. And I mean, essentially what I just described, and I feel uh, a lot of what this fluid editor is, is sort of a, a reverse parser. Um, you're, you're, you're generating the AST, uh, so you're generating text from the AST and keeping enough state uh, to to know what, uh, what 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 state you're in. I fe it feels it feels very like parsing, uh, and I feel that that we're going to get into like the generalizable world here. We're going to be in in some sort of like parser generators and, and that kind of thing. Hmm. Um. So th um, when I was using Dark. Um especially the fluid editor, I guess both of them, they're both in very early stages where things are morphing. Um, but there were like a, a bunch of bugs, um, like trying to get mm -hmm. the states and whatnot. Yep. And, and I've used other structured editors and they also are either very restrictive and not fluid mm -hmm. or they're buggy. And so um, mm -hmm. part of me wonders if there's a way to ever be confident in like having caught all of the edge cases mm -hmm. and, um, and like it, in such a way that when it, instead of four thousand, like maybe one maybe a hundred thousand lines of code, and if someone wants to change mm -hmm. a part of it, uh, how, how will they be sure that not it, it doesn't all break? I guess this is a question about 
I guess all programming, but but this. Yeah, I mean, it it, it sounds like you're asking the question like, how, how does one software engineer? <laughs> okay, I guess, I guess that I guess that's fair. I, yeah. In particular, structured editors is the, the kind of software that um, people listening to this podcast I think are disproportionately yeah. likely to build themselves. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that like exact same piece of software. So yeah. if you have any uh, software engineering advice specifically for structured editors. Uh, that's kind of so, what I'm getting. So I, I think um, the, the the thing that we started doing very early was was unit tests. So like far far sooner than than uh, one would would than I would typically write tests, and then we're we're using a st uh, statically typed functional language. So like testing is, is sort of a, a thing we do when we find bugs, uh, as opposed to when we write code initially. Uh, but with with the fluid editor, so we, we've hundreds of tests now. Hmm. Um, and there's more there's more tests in Fluid than, than in the entire rest of the application. I see. Um, and so the first thing we did was we made a test harness. Um, and we made a test harness that made it super, super cheap to write to write this sort of thing. Um, I mean the, the, that's a that's a general uh, good testing practice. Um, the thing that we're that we're gonna add soon is fuzzing. Uh, I think fuzzing is is an essential part of finding all those edge cases, and I think once uh, you know, w w once you run the fuzzer for long enough, and, and in a certain sense that this this uh, is similar to, to parsing as well. Uh, you know, if if you run your parser overnight, or if you run your your fuzzer in your in your parser for you know overnight or, or days, you're eventually going to realize that that yeah, it's caught it's caught all the bugs. Um, so yeah, we 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 have a pretty uh, immense test suite. The I mean, w w one of the things, and, and and this isn't a great answer. Uh, for uh, uh, for most people is is that we we invest a lot into it so you know there's multiple people on the team here who are um, uh, who are building and solving those edge cases um, the uh, you know we're spending spending quite a lot of money on this and then there's uh, there's a there's users who are trying it out and finding the bugs um, which which is not a wonderful answer for a uh, uh, for people uh who are maybe solo projecting projecting it um but that's that's how we got there hmm. yeah that makes sense um uh let's talk about the dark data store um mm -hmm. could you compare it to uh, well i guess maybe first tell me like how proud of you of it you are because there are like a number of things that are like in progress <laughs> decisions so if it's something that like you're not yes. proud of yet we don't have to talk about it but if you're proud of it, uh, so it, it I, I, I would describe ourselves as, as not proud of it yet. Okay. Uh, I think we're, I think we're fine with it right now, um, and it's, it's one of those things where, where it's, we're, we're on step two of, of six, and I think we'll, we'll start getting proud of it around four. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the way it works at the moment is that, that when you have a data store, uh, data stores are, are, are key value stores. Um, so you can store a value in it and you know, store it by a key, look it up by a key, and there's also you can you can query it. Um, so you can query so it, it feels um, by things that aren't the key, like by other values. By by um, uh, by exact matches of field names. Okay. Um, so if if you've used you know Mongo or Redis, um, and I know, I know it's not it's not the great those uh, Mongo especially isn't the greatest tool to be uh, to be comparing to. Um, but it's uh, it, it, it's you know you, you save you save um, values in, in in a database, so it, it feels a little bit like document stores. Um, and 
what what we're we're unhappy with um, is uh, that we we don't use real types for them. So so that's kind of our, our major thing. And then the next one is uh, is database migrations. So handling uh, data migrations, not just schema migrations between when you're when you're when you're going from one type to the other. And all this is is, is spec, but 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 not implemented. Um, and then uh, I, I think we'll be we'll be relatively happy at that point. Uh, I think the next thing that that uh, w that it will take for for me to be really happy with this is having more than than just storing uh, records in it, uh, but being able to to store anything. And then after that, we'll have more persistent data structures, so not just key value stores, but like values, lists, um, etc. Um, and at some point, we want to add back. Uh, relational aspects to it. So the initial version of uh, of Dark was relational, and we realized that the data model uh, didn't match uh, a a relation. So data model of the language didn't match a data model uh, of the code. Uh, sorry, of of um, uh, a, a relational database model. Hmm. Um, so we tore that out. Went to went to persistent key value stores. And the thing that that that, that like. You know, I, I sound a little bit negative on, on my own product here. Uh, I I guess the the important thing is you know it works. Um, where where we're going with it? One of the one of the particular uh, challenges is uh, when you when you look at something like Mongo and how it, how it moved its query language. It it it. What what Mongo and Redis and, and, and a bunch of others said was, uh, you know, S SQL is is bad. We're going to come up with something different. And the thing that they came up with wasn't wasn't great. Um, it, it's this sort of like language that that sort of hacked into key names and and, and that kind of thing and, and ends up being really weird. Uh, so we're we're not happy with that that direction. What we want is to be able to do uh, a query that has any arbitrary code in it. Uh, and for us to compile that to a, a really fast like indexed query. Um, and that's that's where we're going with this. So rather than looking things up by specific fields in the record, you'd look things up probably by uh, by a function or, or a lambda um, that you know says if this field is this and you know has the prefix of this and and you know all, all this other stuff and, and all this like complex logic. Mm. That's really yeah. That's really cool that you can unify the query language and the programming language that way. Right, and and people have done this before. So the, the, there's link um, in in sort of the, the C sharp world. Uh, that's actually the only one I'm I'm really familiar with that that does this well. But uh, w one of the one of the problems that um, that lead to all this accidental complexity is that different different domains you can't use the same uh, the same language for. So if you're, um, your your SQL, like so, if you're writing something in Rails, then there comes a point where you have to drop down to, to SQL, and now now you're in a completely different world, mm -hmm. um, and a world that, that you probably have no familiar familiarity with. Um, so we, we, we want you to to write, you know, the exact query that you want in the dark language, and and this is, this is part of the the um, the accidental complexity that we remove is figuring out what your infrastructure is. So one of the major things, aside from the, the solving deployment, is, is solving infrastructure. Um, and we want you to just write the application, and we will compile that to the right distributed systems for your service. 
and part of that is is this this query optimizer. Um, mm -hmm. I liked your post about um, getting the benefits of both static and dynamic mm -hmm. typing because um, that's mm -hmm. something that I find myself saying a lot, um, but I, I, I think it's kind of rare. Um, I think you and mm -hmm. I, we both have this uh, conviction that there is a way to get the best of both worlds with the editor mm -hmm. support. Right, right. If you, if you add tooling in, like current languages do everything in the language because that's the, the domain that they have. Um, and, and that's what they're able to, to, to work on. Um, but some things are better done in an editor than, than they are in the language. Yeah, that's well said. So um, I feel like all the flame wars between f static versus dynamic, we can like just mm -hmm. we can literally end those wars because uh, we can you can have something that feels as dynamic as you want, um, but then mm -hmm. on the on the back end somehow it could warn you that certain choices you made while prototyping uh, under certain conditions that it could specify for you will yep. lead to errors. Yeah, I mean the, the there's kind of two. Um, two aspects to this to this uh, static dynamic war and so one of them is uh, you know how, how, how much can you guarantee is is not going to um, uh, how many bugs can you guarantee cannot happen um, and the uh, then the other side of it is like what what constraints are you going to apply to make that the case and one of the major one of the major constraints that that is applied by, by all these uh, all these um, statically typed languages is you know you can only have one type of a thing in, in, in a certain place. So like the in Python a list can be anything, uh, which which has benefits and, and has downsides. And in uh, in Haskell a list is of a particular thing. Uh, now it might be of a of a particular thing that that's quite general uh, with with type classes or something like that. But it's it's you know of a particular thing. Um, and I think a lot of the backlash to C and C++ came because the cost was high and the benefit wasn't wasn't all that. Uh, and I think when you look at the uh, statically typed functional languages, um, they, the things that they move into the type system, uh, in particular exceptions uh, and null, uh, or, or you know, the, the absence of null, I think makes a really, really big difference. and, and provides a really solid uh, move forward from you know, the, other, the other static languages. And this other movement that you have at the moment is gradual typing and bringing in things like TypeScript and, and MyPy and, and you know, static typing into, uh, into all these functional, uh, sorry, into all these dynamic languages. And my impression from that is that they're bringing in this like very classic Java slash C++ model um, into languages that aren't that at all. So when I was trying to my pie up um, the the initial version of Dark, which was which was written in Python, uh, and I discovered I did all this all this dynamic things and it just they weren't represented in the type system at all. <laughs> um, so I think I think there there's a reason that 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 people are adding these types to to to, to these systems because it's 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 kind of hard. Uh, but I think the 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 other way might be the way to go rather than starting something uh, that's super dynamic and, and start to introduce all these constraints. What if you started with the with the super constraints thing and then relaxed a bunch of them via tooling? Yep. 
Um, and, and, and that's essentially what, 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 what we're doing with Dark. We're, we're, we're starting with something that, that's roughly like a Camel or Haskell and saying, uh, all right, what can we relax here? Um, in particular, what can we relax that makes for a better coding experience during different phases of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I personally think of it as a scaffolding. So um, mm -hmm. I think you like the, um, I guess to highlight a, a, a thing you do particularly well particularly well in dark is um, automatic unwrapping of maybe mm -hmm. or option types. Because um, mm -hmm. when you're prototyping or when you're building just for yourself, you don't want to deal with error states because um, like that just, you know, you're like doing something like you just don't want to, you know, it's like not part of the, the thing you're right, building. Right, right. You just want to deal with the success cases. Um, yeah. And then maybe if this code yeah. survives more than five minutes, you'll deal with the error cases. And so, yeah, you do a great job of that in dark. Right, exactly. Explain it. Yeah, and, and th that's the really important thing. Um, and, and the real downside that I feel that you get in, um, in statically type functional languages is that you pay the cost for code that, that might not survive. Uh, yeah. And you don't well you don't do this in Python, right? You uh, in Python, if you're prototyping something, uh, maybe, maybe if you write unit tests, if you're if you're tester in development, maybe you pay the cost up front. But like uh, certainly when I write Python, I prototype it, I get it roughly in shape, and then I then I add the stuff to to make it work. Um, and that option isn't really available uh, in in OCaml in Elm. Uh, you you are forced to pay the cost up front and then discover that actually your algorithm was wrong well you've paid all this like static typing cost uh, and it would have been much better to not pay the cost to discover that the algorithm was wrong and then when you get the algorithm into the right shape now is the time to like to add that cost back in uh, and we, we also have um, so we have like the ability to tell you did it you did the thing that you're worried about actually happen? What is the priority of this? Um, so you can ship the thing that like you know hasn't had all the edge cases taken care of, and we'll tell you which ones actually happen in practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's let's talk about um, how that looks in the editor. Uh, I think you use the term mm -hmm. railway programming. Railway. Yeah. So railway oriented programming is um, uh, is this concept uh, by um, uh, Scott. Lachin, I think is how you say his name, um, who is who is a, a, an F sharp um, consultant, and, and he has a he has a blog post or he has a, a web page all about F sharp and functional programming, which which we should link to in the show notes, and whose name I can't remember. Um, I think it's something like F sharp for fun and profit. Uh, so um, he has this concept as a way of teaching monads. So as a way of teaching this sort of like you know, dual system of, of uh, real values and error values. Uh, and, and he teaches it with the concept of, of, a, of a railway. Um, and so a, a friend pointed this out to me uh, a couple of years ago, and I went through all the stuff and I was like, this is a really good model. Um, can, we, can we do, can we actually put something like this in the editor? Uh, and so what, how this appears is on the right uh, of uh, of the editor, so you know, on, on the right margin, um, that's that's where the rail is, uh, and values can be on the rail or off the rail. Being being off the rail means that you're handling them with you know with a match statement or or with some of the monadic constructs like you know maps and and uh, you know option dot and then the, the, that kind of thing. 
Uh, but if it's on the rail, we just unwrap it automatically. Uh, and then uh, this is where we envision putting our, our, our built-in sort of exception tracker. So the thing that tells you in production, all this, all this went wrong and we'll, we'll bring you back to that particular trace. And then you can see in this trace, there was this data and it led to this thing being wrong here. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And um, I don't think this is in the product today. Well, actually it might be. Uh, if I um, do a, like a, a search operation in a list, I guess, I guess mm -hmm. it's called like find maybe in JavaScript. Yeah. Um, w will that automatically go on the rail? So it would like assume that I found the thing? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so anything that returns an option or a result uh, automatically goes on the rail. Hmm. Uh, and and you can you can pull it off if you if you choose to. So if if you find that um, or if if you think in this case you you uh, you know it's always going to be there uh, and and it's uh, it's an essentially an assertion violation that that it's not then then leave it on the rail. Hmm. Um, and that's a case where where you want to be notified if it if it's actually on the rail because you misunderstood something. Um, and so if um, yeah. a user hits a rail. A condition that's on the rail is false mm -hmm. for some reason. What happens to the request? Uh, so it will either five hundred or four or four. So for options, it will four or four for um, uh, for results. It will five hundred and show the the error. Um, uh, so we're we're going to add more more structured things. So it's like oh, this particular error shouldn't be a five hundred. Um, or this particular error should have like this error message or something like that. I see. Um, I think uh, we hadn't defined the terms. Uh, An option is kind of like uh, what in Haskell and a result is kind of like... It's a, it's a maybe in Haskell. Okay, option is maybe and results are... Uh, I, think, I think people in Haskell use the term result, oh, but okay. if they don't, they use either. Got uh, so e e e e so uh, a result is an either where w which uses the constructors okay and error instead of left and right. Got it. Cool. All right. Yeah. Maybe it does have result. I I haven't used Haskell for web programming since college, so I don't know the state of the art of the mm -hmm. type classes. So um, you mentioned briefly that you used to have a what I call a node and wire editor, Dataflow yep. diagram. Um, I, th I, um, <laughs> I maybe I shouldn't, but I, I, I call it a, bit a phase that all of us uh, kind of have to mm -hmm. go through. <laughs> right, right, right. It's uh, like grunge music. Yeah, exactly. It's like we all, you know, like start with regular programming. Then we're like, we see the first one or, or you know, somehow we think about visual programming and that's yeah. kind of how we think of it. And so we're, we're seduced by it and then we start making it or using existing mm -hmm. ones. And then we're like, wait a second. This isn't mm -hmm. all that I thought I was going to be, and then you you switch back maybe to a structured editor, or maybe you switch back to text. You're just done with, done mm -hmm. with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Would you? Um, and so I normally advise people to just either just go for it if if they really are into it, or just skip that phase. Yeah. Um, but people don't really listen to mm -hmm. me. Would you also uh, advise people to skip that phase, or do you think that there, there's something there that could be useful, um, and that maybe if someone really worked on the node and wire thing, they could figure something out? Uh, I was reading something over the weekend that that talked about the the act of of software engineering as uh, as the act of like learning the problem space. Mm. Um, so the, the the artifact is is you know partially the code, but it, it it's partially what, what what the team has learned from from doing it. Uh, 
So I'm not sure I'd advise people to skip it. I, I think we, we certainly gained a lot from um, from doing it. Uh, so our, our, our graph phase was, was around three months. Hmm. Um, and I think now now we could actually go back and like achieve a lot more than, than we did uh, because we, we figured out how to solve a lot of the problems that we had with the graphs that, that we could probably backport. Hmm. Uh, but what, what we did at the end of the graphs was we said, okay, what things are really good about this and what things are really bad about this? And are the things that are really good about this, are they achievable in another way? And the things that are really bad about this, are they like you know, inherent flaws in how one does graphs? Um, or, or are they like things that, that we could like figure out new features? And the problem that we had th the whole way through the graph thing is that we kept, we kept putting off what was, what we said was a, uh, we said was a bug was actually in some cases like a core usability problem that couldn't be solved. Um, so one of the thing, the really annoying things about the, the graph editor was that we actually had to make perfect uh, outcomes to discover that uh, that the perfect outcome still had bad usability. Sorry, uh, what do you mean? So uh, layout, uh, as an mm. example. So, so, so we would lay out the graph editor um, and sometimes something would end up in like a really bad place or it would be confusing. And we were like, oh, that's a bug. You know, sorry about that user who's, who's in for, for user testing. You know, it's just a bug. And there's, there's a lot of things where we're just like, oh, that's a bug. Um, and eventually we realized like, maybe this isn't a bug. Maybe this is a fundamental flaw in how we do it. So we wrote, you know, we, we fixed all the bugs and then we had users do the user testing and they still came up with these with these programs that they were trying to write that that were where, where the graph was unusable for it, even though it was it was doing its job perfectly. And we realized that we we actually just didn't know how to solve some of these things. Hmm. So the, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a simple example. And this sort of relates back to the to the Excel thing that we were discussing earlier. Um, so we had this uh, you know how do you write if statements with with complex conditions? And when I say complex conditions, we were just trying to get people to write fizzbuzz. So not even that <laughs> complex. Uh, so in, in FizzBuzz, you, you've got, you know, if um, value mod 5 equals 0. And so it's, it's two bin ops with a specific precedence. Um, and we, we discovered that it was just really, really hard uh, to, to write that because each bin op would like form its own node in the graph. Uh, and so we, we were experimenting, well, you know, maybe for conditional expressions, you know, we can have a text-based thing. We, we actually wrote a whole parser for like, you know, single conditional expressions. Um, and so we, we eventually got it to the point where, where users could write it, but then when they went back to edit it, we would expand it out to the whole thing. And then they were like, what the fuck is this? Um, so we, we, we just, it's just like, it wasn't, not, not only was it not easy, but like new problems kept coming up all the time and we we didn't have really any answers to a lot of them because the model was just like so different and people people i mean fundamentally people were confused all the time and we were confused as well like that the, there was a lot of times that we would write things and we we're like yeah i kind of don't know what i would expect to do here so w w what we got from the phase was like there's some specific things that we're trying to do. So we're trying to represent uh, what we call the architectural view. So we're trying to represent how data flows between different components in your programs. Um, but that doesn't have to be done via a graph. 
Yeah, I, I, um, I don't know about other listeners, but to me it sounds like a pretty strong case to not do the node and wire phase. <laughs> but I guess um, I think a lot of people come from tools like Pure Data or other um, mm -hmm. art artistic tools that have a data flow graph. Mm -hmm that they had a lot yep. of success with and they didn't even use a keyboard you know they were like you know clicking and dragging and yep. um and so that they they want to translate that same experience to full coding but um yep. my hunch is that the reason it's never really worked is um because like full coding is like arbitrarily complex in a way that mm -hmm. i guess i don't know like songs are, are pretty complicated but um i don't know if it's, it has the same kind of boolean logic and if, if statements uh, mm -hmm. that yeah, I mean, th the the things that we were trying to represent were like lambdas mm. and requests that that you know have data coming in and data coming out, and they sort of you know are in the same place. The the, the input and the output are, are are sort of in the same place. Mm. Um, and we were trying to show uh, what we call live values, mm. uh, which are which are sort of light table esque um, data to the side of, of you know, what data is actually flowing through this particular part of the program. Um, and I, I think it was that thing that you said earlier, the, the initial case is like, it looks extremely promising. Um, and the, the, initial, the initial demo I made for Dark before, before we raised money, this was, this was all we had, but it was a two week demo of like, can you write code with this? Um, and, and I was like, yes, so, you know, I, I understand what this is. Each node in the graph is a function, each, each line is an input. Um, uh, very similar to, to Luna, if you've seen Luna, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, we, we 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 couldn't we couldn't make it feel good. Okay, um, I want to spend some time on the full vision for Dark. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how much you can approximate it, but um, like one day, will it be like like how far will you go? Will it one day be for writing? Um, the front end and the back end? Will, will you use it to write your apps for mobile devices? Um, and then I guess like maybe on the outer edge of what your vision might be, will you one day mm -hmm. have something that looks kind of like Coda in the sense that it'll blur the line between using software and making software? Or are you gonna stop, mm -hmm. stop bef well before that and it'll still be someone write software and other people use that software? Um. So, so I guess I should, I should talk about them separately, but the, the answer to both is yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, let, let me start with the, with, with the, with the Coda one. Uh, we, we, we don't plan to go into the low code, no code side of things. We don't, we don't really believe in that except for a couple of things like, like layout and, and, and design and, um, and that, that, that kind of thing where we feel that, that no code is actually a good, um, uh, a good metaphor for it, but the um, our our intent is definitely uh, that you don't necessarily need to make a tool to make the the transformations to, to, to your state. So what I mean by that, um, we we write handlers uh, in Dark uh, that, that that don't take inputs. We we call them REPLs, which is which is a, a slight cheat on on, on you know, what a REPL actually is, uh, but where you can just write code and execute it. Uh, and then we, we save them uh, and you know, just leave them in, in the code. Because, so an example of, of one of these might be adding a user. So the way, a way to add a user in Dark uh, is to open up your Dark program, call the add user function, uh, and, and then that triggers all the, you know, send them the email and, and uh, put them in the account and, and, 
and and all that sort of thing um and that that's that's a way to do it uh and it's sort of uh we want to build up more of that so when you think of the admin dashboards that people build uh, like in Django or something like that, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. And that may eventually become, you know, something where, uh, you know, where perhaps an individual, uh, this is this is uh, an example that, that, that we use in that sort of distant future, where, where a recruiter might have built their, uh, their applicant tracking system entirely in Dark and where they have a bunch of tools that they've written in Dark uh, to, to do, you know, modifications to that. Hmm. Um, so it's it's not going to feel like the documenty metaphor, uh, I think. Um, but there, there's we definitely want to blur the line between you know how you write software and how you use software. Hmm. Cool. Um, so to to the other question, you know, does does Dark uh, go into front end and mobile apps? So the, to, to a certain extent, um, you know, I don't think that we're replacing Swift or React. We we don't intend to. Um, in fact. When we look at other tools in this space, and, and Meteor is, is, is one example, one one of the things that that led to, to to huge problems for Meteor was that that they were trying to be you know both front end and back end at a time where there was a huge explosion and excitement in in front end stuff, and that you couldn't use it and in in the initial version. They, hmm. they later later let you allow um, you know support React in 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 Meteor, um, and we we so we don't intend to you know have Dark compiled to JavaScript that replaces React. Hmm. Um, what what we would like is, you know, this GraphQL stuff that you're writing. Maybe we can make that easier. Um, maybe maybe we can uh, add uh, add an SDK to React or, or to Swift or whatever, which uh, does a lot of maybe the transport layer. Maybe we can automatically optimize transport. Maybe keep the types the same in your back end or your front end. Uh, that that kind of thing, um, and beyond that, you know, really no idea where where, where that goes. Uh, I don't imagine <clears throat> I don't imagine people writing single page apps in Dark though, at least not not in into some long distance in the future. And it'll if it, if that does happen, it will likely come from the community rather than um, rather than that, that than something that, that that we're planning to build. Mm. Just to be clear, I think what you mean is that. Uh, people will be able to build a single-page app with Dark as the backend, but you won't be able to build it. Sorry, yes, yes. I, I, I meant, I meant. Uh, we don't expect that people will replace writing React uh, or writing Vue or or Svelte or, or whatever with writing Dark. Yeah. Uh, but they will use Dark for the backend. That 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 is what Dark is really good for. It's it's really good for being the backend to a single-page app. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was pretty sure that you weren't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you just you push your static assets to Dark or some other static place, and then um, yeah, and then they just talk to Dark. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so I want to push back on your claim that that you aren't into low code or no code because um, mm -hmm. I I think that Dark is no code in the same way that Salesforce is anti software, not software. Oh, you 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 take that back. Well, in the same way that Salesforce is not software, because Salesforce clearly is software. It's just not the annoying parts of software that people used to think associate with software. It's like when, when mm -hmm. a business person thought of software 20 years ago, they thought of like these massive contracts and this like two year install period and like training. Isn't that what Salesforce is today? 
No, well, Salesforce today, well, I guess it, it is kind of, yeah, that's actually true. There is a lot of that today. But the, the yeah. promise is that you um, you just like, you know, go to a browser and you sign mm-hmm. up and then you just start using it. Uh, and like the software itself uh, kind of disappears because you're just dealing with your customer data. That's like the dream. That like, you, you don't realize you're using software, you're just like dealing with your customers. And so... I feel like yeah, I mean, dark is no I mean, code what, in that way. What they had as as you know what they were talking about when when Salesforce said no software is like you know it's in the cloud. Yeah, it, there's no installation, um, and and you know that that is sort of the same, uh, and, and I think that's where where the similarities end. <laughs> uh, the uh, I, I think I think no software was uh, was a very bad. Um, uh, Metaphor. I think it was it was very good for their for their customers. Um, the with developers, developers largely do not want like they they like code. <laughs> um, they they want to write code and they want tools that make coding better, as opposed to tools that take away uh, that take away that coding. And so when when you think about so. Coding is, is kind of like you know symbolic reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, no code is write software without symbolic reasoning. Uh, so without the thing that that we have spent you know years getting getting good at, and without the thing that that is like super powerful. Well, so uh, I- low code is sort of like writing writing code with like different tools that that don't feel codey. Um, we we very much intend to to build simpler ways of writing code that feel like code and that contain the you know, the, the, the standard metaphors of, of code. Well, I, I think this is obviously a, a semantic uh, like discussion we're having. It, it is, absolutely. But I think it's a fun one because um, when I think about the essence of code, um, mm-hmm. I agree that it's like symbolic uh, reasoning of some sort you know like the idea of encoding your ideas into boolean algebra seems pretty core mm-hmm. to coding and if you're not doing that then you're doing something else um but uh if you look at webflow which has put itself at the center of the no code or low code movement with this like no code mm-hmm. uh conference they're like a css compiler they're and they have like mm-hmm. animations that you can p- code in there um Mm. And and they have like a whole uh, CRM, you know. Co- co- there's mm-hmm. there's definitely it's very clear to me that Webflow is um, it's programming <laughs> just it, with like a direct manipulation with just a nicer interface. Um, mm-hmm. So from that description, I and then so what I think what I think the word no code is becoming to mean, even though like it's it's phrased no code, it doesn't actually mean mm-hmm. no code. It means None of the annoying parts of coding. I think it means like no no uh, s- syntax errors and things like that. Because I, I imagine if I put someone who's never programmed that isn't how I how I perceive uh, the semantic or you know, like the, the the meaning of no code. I I I know that that's not how the word sounds no in code. But I just imagine mm-hmm. putting my brother or my girlfriend um, people who could definitely use Dark, uh, even though they mm-hmm. could definitely not use any other. Um, mm-hmm. Backend tool, like not even close. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like yeah, so many of my friends could use Dark, and I don't. I think they might not realize that they're programming. I, I might. I feel like they might mm-hmm. be like, oh, look, this is this isn't code. Like they won't because they don't know what code is. They just know that coding right, is right, a right. lot harder, and there are a lot more error states. Like they they've had some some right, negative right, experiences right. with coding that they're not having here. This is like using a regular piece of software. 
Well, I mean, it's got a black background, so it's coding. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, but uh, well, the uh, when I think of what's hard about coding, um, you're you're totally right. Like this 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 setup, you know, the the Git and you know bash. setting up npm and bash and like terminals and uh, you know vim. Uh, you know, there there's a lot of things that that add to like you know just this huge complexity that you have to get over in order to write. Your your first line, uh, your your first working application, uh, and you can go through a tutorial, and you can end up at the other end tutorial with like an app that does something, and you have no idea what you did. That was just the stuff that you had to do to get there. But I think sorry to interrupt, but just quickly I'll interject. I think that what sticks with people and like the medium is the message sense. Is like all that annoying stuff they had to do. That was the coding, and like a little bit of code they wrote, like to get the Hello World to mm -hmm. show up. That was like just for fun. Like you know, like they don't. Re I think I think it's flipped. right, right. But but that that's what the coding is. <laughs> like the you know, when when we talk about like symbolic reasoning, it is it is the print statements. The and everything that's around that print statement is crap. It, it's it's accidental complexity. So um, I, I feel like what I'm getting at is if that's your stance, then the no code movement, like. There's something wrong with it because the no-code movement, in theory, is getting getting rid of all of the mm -hmm. all of the cruft, um, and then like what is it? And and also, it's getting rid of the code too. It it is. I mean, I I, I think that that's fundamentally it. That that no-code is about. Uh, you know, they came to the conclusion that that coding is hard. Oh, um, I see. Because they saw that the other stuff was hard, they didn't realize you could remove that stuff. Right. Exactly. And so if you remove that stuff, but kept the coding bit, and you kept you know, the ability to write during complete programs that, that, that can do anything. Um, and and you, you can see this. I mean, I, I, I saw when, when, you did, um, when you did Coda for what I guess is in the, the no-code catalog, um, but when we saw the, the preliminary version, there was a bunch of stuff that you couldn't do, a lot of programs you couldn't write, um, a, lot of, a lot of, you know, sort of logic that couldn't be represented. Um, and like I, I'm willing to stipulate that Excel is coding. Uh, like it, it that's sure. you know, Excel I'd sort of call like low code. Uh, but you know, at underlying Excel is like the, the, there's a lot of code. Um, and there's a lot of formulas that you write and, and it, it, it's stripped away all of the you know, the NPM install, the the, 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 the git init part of coding. Um, most of the no-code tools I've looked at, uh, and uh, like I, I do not believe that that they fundamentally allow coding under it, mm. which would you know, clues in the name. So, um, where would you put Webflow in the in the spectrum? Because they, so yeah. so Webflow I think is is in the category of things that like where a visual editor is really a good idea. Mm -hmm. So, so I think what what no code is really good for is uh, problems that are that are design related and problems that like maybe we shouldn't have been doing in code in the first place. Hmm. So I, I remember when we were in college, um, we we had this project and, and we were creating a, a Windows app, um, and there so we we, we you know someone someone wrote all the code to to do it and it was it was buggy and it was you know hard to get right. And then instead, we used the Visual Studio built-in, you know, drag and drop thing, um, and it created a ton of code. And all the code was like unreadable and so on, but it worked really well. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, you, you see this kind of in, in, in Swift as well, uh, that, that the, you know, it's, it's hard to write that code. And there are problems that, that actually maybe aren't really uh, intended to be solved by code anyway. That, that, that a visual editor is ideal for, for things like how do you lay things out. Uh, so I, I, I think of Loco, or sorry, I think of Webflow as a, as a great solution for that, uh, for that particular problem. Hmm. Um, so like the, the particular problem of like how, how do we build uh, websites? Uh, I don't think of it as a particularly great problem for how do we architect uh, front-end applications. I mean, which is a problem that it isn't trying to solve. But you know, when, when you've been writing, um, uh, when you've been writing, you know, React or, or single-page apps for a while, you, you you start to understand that that the architecture of this application is like super important and is hard to do. Um, and yeah, you know, there the, there isn't something about uh, in, inherent to to low code or, or to a specific visual paradigm of, of editing um, that that helps with that problem. All right, that makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask you to, to talk about some of the downsides of dark. Um, mm -hmm. I I liked how you listed yep. that that was one of the blog posts you're going to write, like explicitly calling out all the do the downsides. And, I, and you yep. listed open source, self-hosting, and potential lock-in. I, th I think those are some of the biggest ones. Yeah. Um, so, so the biggest, um, the biggest thing is is probably that one. So let me, let me start with a smaller one first. Um, so, people are going to have to do things a little bit differently in Dark. Um, and. You know, specifically, they're going to have to leave their favorite language, and they're going to have to leave their favorite editor. Um, and yeah, I don't think anyone really has a favorite architecture. Um, but people but like GitHub. Too. Uh, yeah, and 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 like they're they're you know, not using the Git flow workflow um, or the the GitHub pull request workflow. Um, they're they're not writing code on 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 their machine and. Uh, and, and coding in dark feels a little bit different. Uh, it, you know, on, on your first day, you're, you're going to feel you're going to feel a little bit uneasy uh, because you know everything's live and you don't have this thing where you like you know where, where you don't have a commit that that does the the you know this this thing is done kind of moment. Um, so yeah, th th things things feel a little bit different, and, and some of that you'll get over, um, and and some of that like is. Um, you know, if you've got this this super customized Vim or Emacs or, or VS Code or whatever setup, uh, you know, Dark Dark isn't going to support that at the start. Um, and we, we we may support you know similar things at, at the end, but we're we're definitely not going to do it at the start. And especially especially if you're a Vim user and you're you're used to all the the Vimy things, um, you know that, that we we may we may eventually have a Vim node. We 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 certainly will not on on day one. Maybe you'll start with the Emacs mode on day, on day one. Uh, so I mean, actually, if you're if you're used to Emacs things, you know things like Control A, Control E, uh, you know work nicely, and 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 the the, the read line shortcuts, hmm. um, and and there there's things like you know Alt X to, to bring up these these uh, the refactoring commands. So it does feel a little Emacs. -y. Oh wow, I was joking. Oh yeah, um, the and and the intent actually is is for Dark uh, for if you to be able to write editor extensions in Dark. Hmm. Uh, which which is also very Emacsy. Hmm. Um, so yeah, um, so the the so the 
that's going to be one thing. People, people are going to have to uh, you know, leave leave some tools, and and that's a thing that they uh, that people on an individual basis can decide to do or or or, or, or not to do. The uh, the more the more major one is of course like you know, are are you locked into dark uh, and what are what are the options around that and and fundamentally for us it's it's not a good thing uh, for, for for you to be locked into dark like the your product should should stand on their own merits and and if people um, if people want to leave uh, for for whatever reason and you know we, 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 we are aware that we are definitely going to churn customers uh, you know that that just happens your uh, uh, you know, at, at, at Circle, I remember that you know our, our first customer who got to spending a million a year churned, and our second customer who got to spending a million a year churned, and then we we finally had figured out and solved all the problems, and now customers who get to a million a year don't churn. <laughs> uh, but you know th- 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 that 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 is a that is a life cycle that that most companies go through, where where um, they you know the first the first people who need a certain thing, uh, if they really need it. Um, that you may not be able to solve their that you may not be able to, to solve their problem, and they need to, need to leave for that, and, and one of those is scale. Um, so I, I have no doubt that 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 you know, people will churn, uh, and we want people to be able to churn, uh, mostly because it lowers the the risk uh, of signing up to Dark. We we don't want Dark to be only for people who um, you know who who are backed into a corner, who you know don't have the resources, and and Dark is the only way to achieve what what. what what, what they want to achieve we, we want it to be you know a conscious choice you're 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 looking at dark for its advantages and disadvantages and you're comparing it to you know go or, or node or, or or whatever uh on whatever stacks they come with so uh we we have looked at various different ways um of, of solving this uh the one that uh the one that people ask specifically about uh is is open sourcing dark um we uh, when we look at the advantages uh, of Dark and, and kind of what Dark is, um, the main thing about Dark is that we run it ourselves. Uh, you know that 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 we host it, that we run the infrastructure, and, and we've talked a bit about you know compiling queries and and sort of optimizing that that infrastructure stuff. That that's kind of like a very intentional part of Dark, and there's there's many tools today that that don't do that. That that you know you can run yourself. Um, so the the other factor with this is uh, the current movement in in open source around, uh, especially with with open source databases, around like who who gets the value out of the ecosystem, uh, and and increasingly the answer is Amazon, <laughs> um, and it's it's super important to us that especially from from the perspective of of this sort of you know lock in question, uh, dark needs to be sustainable, um, and. Uh, the, it has to be something that that builds uh, on itself, and, and, and that the, the you know the, the company or the people behind building Dark uh, need, needs to be a sustainable ecosystem for, for this to be to be usable for people. Um, and we saw what happened with like Parse as an example of, of something that wasn't sustainable. It was you know got got acquired by someone who who didn't have a strategic value of it, um, and and you know for people who build on Dark. Having having dark be sustainable is is you know existential risk. So uh, we we are not planning to open source dark at the moment, um, which would be one way of, of dealing with that lock in. The way that we intend uh, to deal with that lock in in the short term is, is sort of 
dealing with uh, so th there's two kind of cases. There's there's dark dies, right? You know, <laughs> dark isn't able to raise money. Um, there's some cataclysmic event, um, and and dark has to shut down. So so what do people do then? Uh, so in in that case, we're we're looking at creating some sort of uh, legal framework. Uh, that that says that we will shut that that we will open source dark if it shuts down, and maybe even um, setting aside money or creating a fund to to support uh, to support us during that phase to to give people the ability to uh, you know to to start a hosting thing or or to you know run it themselves or or just you know have some smoothness as it uh, as they move off it. I like the idea of um, like social security, like. Uh when you pay for dark, like 10% of what you're paying for is uh, just in case dark shuts down, like, you know, getting you mm -hmm. off of dark. Yeah, so absolutely not 10%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the, I mean, we're, we're looking at it more as a, um, you know, how many people could we keep this in maintenance mode with? And, and you know, we need to pay their salaries and, uh, well, I guess I'd be doing it for free. Uh, but yeah, there, there's other people whose salaries will need to pay. Um, and you know, at the start, when when users signed up, um, and we had you know our first user, our second user, our sort of handshake agreement with them was like, if if this doesn't work out, we will we will rewrite the code for you in in Node or whatever, and we'll you know we'll we'll help you get it onto Lambda or, or something like that. And we we want a variation of that. Like we can't we can't hand write it, uh, but but we we do want some. Uh, something that if you decide to move off dark, there's a way to get it onto Lambda, uh, or or you know, or some other or other framework like that. So we're we're looking at um, you know, so so this is this is the situation, not so much dark shuts down situation, but but dark succeeds, but you can't use it for for whatever reason. Got it. Um, and so like you know, compiling it out into a Node app or a Go app uh, is is one option that. The, that, that we've looked at, compiling it out maybe into a binary, so you have to, uh, you know, start the code again. Is uh, but but you you have the ability to keep running the current thing. Uh, all these like solve, you know, a subset of problems. They're they're not a, a complete solution. Um, so we're we're interested in um, in hearing from people like which of these solutions are are actually interesting and, and like from people that would consider them. I know there's a lot of people who just wouldn't consider them. <laughs> um, but that, 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 that's, that's, uh, I guess that's interesting information as well. Cool. Yeah. I really appreciate how honest up front you are with this, uh, choice and, and like the trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, f fundamentally lock-in sucks for, uh, for us because it prevents people from adopting. Um, so having a solution to it, uh, matters to us. It's funny because, um, that goes against the like uh, common sense or common wisdom. Like lock-in is good for companies. Um, I I don't think that lock-in is good for companies. Uh, I think people start to resent the companies, and it, it spends whatever consumer goodwill when they have uh, when they have lock-in. Like you want lock-in from from being such a good product uh, that people just can't use anything else. You don't want lock-in. From, uh, I mean, my my philosophy of, of businesses uh, is is that lock in from a monopolist uh, standpoint sucks. So like you know, so many people hate Facebook and and use it every day because there's there's no alternative. Or look at you know people people's feelings about Verizon or Comcast. 
um, the, the, there's a certain point at which companies turn to rent seeking uh, and lock-in is, is used for rent seeking uh, and you know, that's the point at which innovation has, has long died at the company and yeah we, we absolutely don't want uh, don't want that to be um, uh, what dark is uh, but at the same time you fear that if you give like allay all lock in fears and go open source you won't be able to be a sustainable business because uh, people will just not pay for it they'll just self-host the open source version uh, I mean the, the, the fear that, 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 that we're looking at is that Amazon will, will host it <laughs> I see um and you know the, the this this happened with Elastic. This happened with uh, uh, Mongo. Um, and you know the, it, it's not even that like you know Amazon is is bad. They're you know no, no doubt they're doing the things that their customers want them to do. Hmm. Um, but but you know we have a responsibility to to our customers to make this uh, to make this sustainable. So um, um, so open sourcing it. Uh, I just wanted to ironically to, isn't necessarily the most sustainable approach. I uh, just I, I'm wondering if a cert, an open source license, like a particular open source license, might uh, you'll just tell me why it doesn't work um, might work. Um, could you open source it in such a way that I if I'm using it as an application, like if mm-hmm. I built something on Dark and I want to self-host yeah. it, I can do that. But if I want to sell it as a platform in the way that Amazon Web Services would, that's not allowed. Yeah. So, so this is uh, what a lot of these database companies are experimenting with. Um, so they're, they're source available licenses. They're not, uh, they're not technically open source because open source has, has a specific meaning. Um, and they adding that provision, uh, I, I think it is not possible to be technically open source and adding that provision. But I, I think that we're going to have, uh, we're going to see a shift to, to this sort of like source available thing. Um, the, the, there are certain expectations that people have for something being open source, like their their ability to contribute to the ecosystem, mm-hmm. um, and you know that 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 may or may not exist in in source available licenses. Uh, there there's a certain thing about about open source that it's it's much more than like you know the legal definition and it's sure. it's how you treat your community and, and how you build software and 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 that sort of thing, um, and. There, there is an element to that that will exist in Dark already. Hmm. So you know, there'll be a there'll be a package manager in Dark, and there'll be the ability to create and share libraries. Uh, so I, I believe that we will we will have many of the advantages that that people expect to see from open source, uh, but that the running the platform themselves is is not necessarily like or. I, I don't think there's anyone who wants to run the platform themselves, including people who like you know get too get too close uh, or get too big for the ecosystem, um, or pe- people who get too big for our hosting thing. Like if if we can't make it work, uh, it is unlikely that that just hosting it themselves is going to solve this problem, uh, except for things like you know kind of on-prem and 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 uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, and there, there's other ways to handle those. Oh yeah, how is the on-prem? Like uh, when, for legal reasons, you you need your servers to be on prem. Do you have a solution for that? Like, uh, I guess Salesforce. Well, so on on prem has has had uh, has had many or many changes in definition uh, mm-hmm. over the last decade or so. Yeah. So it used to be on prem meant like physically <laughs> uh, on the premise. Mm-hmm. 
nowadays on-prem is like running in an Amazon VPC that, that you control <laughs> so that when, when you shut it down, you can, you know, you get to shut it down uh, and the company can no longer access within it. Yep. Um, the, I, I, I think we're, we're, we're probably going to stick with, with more of the public cloud thing, um, but perhaps the lines will become, you know, so blurred uh, that that there's a thing where we where we can address your your issues in a way that um, uh, in a way that uh, you know that th- that is sort of manageable within the model that that, that we're looking to build. Got it. Um, so one day, will you like is is the future of dark? Uh, you're going to compete with AWS directly and like run your own data centers, or you're going to always be on top of some other cloud service. Um, I, I think that we will always uh, have some amount of things running on the cloud. Uh, so in terms of, of business model, we're, we're absolutely uh, competing with AWS. The, we, we think you know, AWS and its 200 services um, are, not all of them, but you know, a large majority are, are accidental complexity and that people shouldn't have to, to do that in order to write code or in order to like, you know, receive data and process it and store it and send it. Um, should be much much simpler than than, than what exists, and, and what we're building is is essentially a competitor to to, to, to AWS. Um, the question of like when and how we build our own data centers, there there's so much like that 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 are in these public clouds that um, that that people kind of need. Um, so you know, building all the data centers that 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 that, that currently exist is hard. Um, so, but even if you were to build them, like a lot of what people need is I, I need this app to like sit next to my existing app, which is in, you know, US East 2 or something like that. Mm. So um, it, it isn't just a case of, of, you know, you can build data centers and, and, and replace it. I, I think there's, there's a, a hybrid world. Um, I think that we will start looking at uh, optimizations, in, including cost optimizations at some point so that will move a certain amount of that uh, of traffic uh, or of um, uh, of compute or storage uh, off of AWS. Uh, I mean, we're, we're not using AWS, we're actually using Google Cloud, but move, move it off those things or move it between those things or allow you to specify constraints um, where you know, perhaps you don't care about this service at all, but you'd like it to be cheap. Um, it doesn't matter you know, how available it is, uh, well, as long as it's you know, somewhat available, but like you, you, you can tolerate a certain amount of downtime um, if, you know, if it can be run for a third of the price. And in that case, you know, why wouldn't we run it on you know, Hertzner or you know, one, of the, one of the budget um, infrastructures rather than, rather than paying for the full you know, availability that, that, that you get from, from AWS or GCP instead. So we, we, we think that like lots of these are, are options in the future, but that the kind of how we think about Dark is, is a, a compiler for your infrastructure or, or compiling your app to the, the ideal distributed system for, for what you want. And some of those constraints are cost uh, and some of those will, will be eventually, yeah, we're, we're going to move off. Um, and I think that we're also going to get uh, a couple of really nice economies of scale from that optimization. Um, even staying on the cloud, we, we might know that you know the certain kind of constraints that you're looking for here mean that we should use this this service rather than this service, and this one is, is a lot cheaper. Um, I, I think that at some point we'll get we'll get to individually compiling databases for for your workload, 
Um, and you know, rather than than running it on on Postgres, which is what we do now, uh, and that 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 will realize um, you know orders of magnitude of performance improvements and, and cost savings from doing that. Cool. Yeah, it it sounds pretty exciting. And now now I'm wondering if uh, if someone really buys into this vision, which I think a lot of your early customers might. Uh, have you thought about running some sort of like customer? Uh, fundraise where like they could somehow get a piece of the upside if you were able to win um, I would be interested in doing that we will be fundraising in the near future um, the uh, it is very challenging to raise money from non-accredited investors legally uh, legal, legally like it creates a lot of a lot of challenges for, for, for your company ah. Um and so, so I'm not sure whether whether we're going to do that. We we kind of have a lot of people who are interested in, in giving us money. So it's not it's not a thing that we need to do, but it's a thing that I like doing from that upside thing. But it might be legally too too challenging. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I yeah, I don't expect you're going to have trouble raising funds from mm-hmm. from from uh, very smart uh, investors. But I, I feel like uh, mm-hmm. you could get some amount of um, customer loyalty, extra extra points. Right, yeah. right. And and I I believe in that. I want to do that with with uh, with Circle. Um, to a certain extent, I kind of want to do that for for Circle customers today. Uh, that that you know the invest in Paul's next thing. Um, the uh, yeah the it's it's unfortunate that the the galities are are um, are annoying there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, two two more questions. Hopefully these ones will be quick. Um, I wanted to quickly talk about the tech stack because, uh, mm-hmm. as a compiler, programming languages person, I imagine you've put a ton of thought into it. Um, before before you talk about this tech stack, I want to talk about the tech stack of uh, Circle simply because mm-hmm. that was how you and I originally met. I don't know if you remember, mm-hmm. but I did some sort of a search on Hacker News for for just the word closure and to see if mm-hmm. there were any companies that were hiring for closure developers, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's how I found you initially. And so I'd be yep. curious to hear about why you chose closure. And why you didn't choose Clojure and Clojure Script, and why you kind of switched to the OCaml ecosystem, you know, all your thinking, mm-hmm. and, and yet why, why your, your experiences with Elm and moving off of Elm, all, all that, that whole story. I guess it's not, not, yeah. a, not a quick question. Um, so, so initially, uh, when Alan and I started um, uh, Circle, uh, that's Alan, not Alan, who's my dark co-founder, um, the... Uh, I, I was working on it uh, nights and weekends, and he was working on it full time. And so we wrote it in Clojure, which was his his favorite language. Um, and I I was initially against that, but after about six weeks uh, of of you know getting to know Clojure and Emacs, which I sort of learned together, uh, I came to realize that like Clojure is this beautiful, elegant language, um, and and that like Clojure is great, and so. Uh, we our initial front end was written in like Backbone and, and JavaScript, uh, and we converted that uh, into into Clojure Script using a, a model that's very similar to the Elm architecture. That was a couple of years later in, in, in 2014, um, and yeah, we were we were you know Dark at a certain point was a was a Clojure monolith, and, and at some point it, it you know forked various things off. Um, and the problem that I found with with Clojure, um, aside from you know things like like the the, the REPL and or having to use a REPL because the the spin up time is is annoying for the JVM and, and that kind of thing like that that's all that's all kind of tolerable but uh, if irritating, 
Um, the major problem that I had with, with closures is the lack of static typing. And um, uh, this guy Ambrose did a lot of work on typed closure, uh, core typed it was called, mm -hmm. uh, which, which Circle sponsored, um, or Circle spo sponsored an amount of. And uh, I, I think he published it, he published his PhD on it uh, late last year, I think, or maybe earlier this year. Um, and it's adding gradual types to closure uh, never ended up being good enough in the experiments that we did. Uh, and we ended up with a lot of problems where, where there was just there was just a nil somewhere. Um, and you know the nil propagated for miles and miles and miles because that's what that's what closure does to nil. Um, if you if you do things with nil, you end up with nil, and, and eventually you end up with nil. And where where did this nil come from? Um, and yeah, that was that was really annoying. And I I had feelings that that um, uh, that static typing was was the solution to this. Uh, and so I played around with with Haskell for for a while. And I, I I'd written a bunch of Haskell you know years before uh, during my PhD. And I really liked this feeling that once it compiles it doesn't necessarily work but like it often uh works or like is pretty close to working you you never have to deal with a thing in, in closure or python where like uh you know you, you got the arguments wrong and like you, you you made a change to something and now the, this other path just like doesn't work at all and so you have to write tons and tons of unit tests but i never was really satisfied with with haskell as a uh, as a language i felt that haskell brought you know a ton of its own accidental complexity um, and uh, and so I, I wasn't I wasn't ha happy with it. And I'd written uh, I'd written a bunch of Elm, uh, and Elm I was super happy with. Like Elm is just like such a beautiful language. It's so well designed. Um, and looking at Elm uh, and at how productive I could be with it, looking at Haskell, I was like, this you know, there's really something to this statically typed functional language. Um, and so the, the one that we hadn't tried was, was OCaml. Uh, so when we, when we started Dark, uh, Dark was about 800 lines of Python and we tried to add MyPy to it and just d didn't get good results out of that. So rewrote it in, in OCaml. Um, and th th there was a very high learning curve for OCaml. Like the, there's a lot of problems with, uh, with OCaml. Um, but but we we approached dark uh, we approached the tech stack for dark with with the the idea of like none of this is going to survive. So we are solving today's problems and tomorrow we will solve tomorrow's problems. Uh, because that that was the phase you know that 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 was the early phase of company that we were at. We're now switching into a different phase of company uh, where where we think a little more uh, into the future, uh, possibly a lot more in the future. But at the time, it's like we have no idea how much of this code is even going to survive at all. So let's um, uh, let's write it in, in a tool that allows us to um, to write things as quickly as possible. And a particular advantage of, of OCaml uh, for early stage projects is, um, uh, is how easily it lets you refactor things. So it, it's not at all unusual that I'd write you know, 2,000 lines of refactor and that I had the compiler working with me to get it working, and that at the other end, you know, it mostly worked, um, or you know, ninety nine percent worked, and there was a couple of bugs still left over. So, uh, OCaml has been great for that stuff. Uh, it has not been great for operationalizing. 
uh, in particular, it's concurrency story. Um, it's it's very hard to write concurrent code in what you kind of think of as standard of Camel. Um, you have to write this cooperative. Um, it's called LWT. Um, this you use this like cooperative async um, libraries uh, that that completely change what what your code look like and how it feels to write code. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, I don't like where we are with OCaml. Uh, our current view is uh, is that we'll be rewriting it in Rust in uh, a relatively near future. Uh, and there, there's there's a couple of different plans that that are you know some amount of OCaml left to no OCaml left at all. Um, but we, we we haven't made that decision yet. Um, and what about on the front end? Uh, so the front end we started with Elm and then we switched to BuckleScript, which is which is a kind of OCaml um, that compiles to JavaScript. We're we're quite happy with that. Um, it, it has solved a lot of the problems that we had with Elm, um, in particular the lack the lack of native code. Um, I think that there's a possibility that 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 we move out of uh, out of OCaml at some point um, to you know something along the lines of like TypeScript. Um, but we, we haven't felt that need um, yet at all. Got it, that makes sense. And then in terms of where you're rendering your dark canvas, is it on the HTML canvas or is mm -hmm. it HTML elements? Right now it's HTML elements. Uh, talking to people who have built large scale editors, it feels like there's a, there's a future that's WebGL, mm -hmm. um, but, but we haven't done any experiments with that. Cool. Um, right now, it's it's just pure pure HTML with a uh, you know, virtual DOM that um, that handles most of the most of the performance. Great, and um, I guess that just leaves me with the final question. Um, maybe list some of the places that you could be reached online, and then what sorts of things that you want people to reach out to you for if you're hiring, if mm -hmm. there are other other things you want to let people know about. Yeah, so we're we're hiring. We're hiring a lot of roles um, at the moment. Not not all of which are, are online, but they, they will be by the time this uh, uh, this blog or this podcast comes out. Um, we uh, we are looking for users. So in particular, people who have a deadline for an app that they need to write. So uh, uh, rather than than kicking the tires, we're we're uh, have lots of people offering to kick the tires, and we're we're really focusing on people who, who have an app they need to build right now and that they need to ship soon. Um, so places that we can be reached online, um, darklang.com is is the obvious one, and uh, signing up for uh, our mailing list, signing up for our beta, uh, and applying for jobs, a uh, good place to do that. By the time this comes out, we should have a lot more information on uh, on that. Um, uh, on the website about Dark, but the uh, we have a bunch of blog posts that are currently on medium.com/darklang, uh, and then on Twitter uh, we are at darklang. Uh, I am uh, at Paul Bigger, and Ellen is at Ellen Chiza. Um, yeah, those are the, those are the ones I can think of. Great. Uh, well, this was really wonderful. I'm glad we finally found the time to do it. Same, same, same. Uh, yeah, very. very, very uh, lovely having this this chat with you. I really enjoyed it. Great. Uh, talk to you later. If you enjoy these conversations, I bet you'd fit right into our online community. You can join our Slack group at futureofcoding.org community, 
where we chat about these topics, share links, feedback, and organize in-person meetup groups in various cities, New York, London, San Francisco, Boston, and others. If you'd like to support these efforts, there are a few ways that you can be helpful. I would really appreciate any reviews you could leave for the podcast, wherever it is that you listen to it. If any episode in particular speaks to you, I would encourage you to share it with your friends or on social media. Please tag me if you're sharing it on Twitter at Steve Krafts so I can join the conversation. I also accept support directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash Steve And as always, I'm so thankful for your constructive criticism and feedback. So please don't be shy with your advice. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you next time.